2: on This is the Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well... The busiest election day of the primary season is now officially over. Results are coming in, and we 'll bring them to you as they as they unfold. Uh, there are some interesting races that we 're watching. I think one of the most interesting states is Pennsylvania in Pennsylvania, you had a competitive democratic primary and a competitive Republican primary in the uh, democratic primary for uh, u you know, s Senate in Pennsylvania. It looks like the lieutenant governor, John Fetterman, there has won the Democratic nomination. The Republican contest is still too close to call at this point. Now, at this point, with 95 percent of the vote in, you have Dr. Oz with a sliver of a lead. But it's still there's still a lot of votes left to count. Uh, I think he's got something like 32.3 percent of the vote and then um or thirty four point two percent of the vote, and uh, David McCormick is one well, is one tenth of one percentage point behind him, and it looks like uh, Kathy Barnett may have gotten about twenty three percent of the vote now, the thing that I wonder here I know a lot of folks are confused by rank choice voting they're afraid of rank choice voting. It looked like for a while. Up until maybe an hour ago, it looked like McCormick was leading. And I I thought we were going to actually see, when it looked like he had had a little bit of a lead, I thought we were going to see McCormick win that Republican primary for Pennsylvania. So it made me think, gee, Kathy Barnett got 23% of the vote. While she's not endorsed by Donald Trump, she's certainly running on a very... Trumpian message. Yeah, it now, Dr. Oz has 31.3%, McCormick has 31.2%, and Kathy Barnett has about 24.7%. That's with 95% of the vote counted so far. Now, but it got me thinking, well, it is possible that if there's a lot of hardcore Trump supporters that are backing Kathy Barnett instead of Dr. Oz, who Trump endorsed, that that could actually siphon off enough votes of Trump supporters from Oz to allow McCormick to win. Now, McCormick is a conservative as well. I think he's backed by Ted Cruz and the Club for Growth and a bunch of other people that are very popular in conservative circles. But it got me thinking, well, how will the Trump supporters that voted for Kathy Barnett feel if they allow David McCormick, a, a, a big Wall Street financier, a hedge fund titan, Uh, The husband of Dina Powell, who, even though she was an aide to Donald Trump, not exactly popular in Trump world. How are people going to feel if their votes for her end up siphoning enough votes from Dr. Oz to allow the least Trumpian of the three? That's my analysis, not anybody else's. McCormick to slip in. And I thought, wouldn't it be great? And again, we don't know who's going to win this race, so this whole analysis might be faulty. But. Wouldn't it be great if in Pennsylvania they had the option for ranked choice voting? And that if you're a Trump supporter in Pennsylvania, you could rank Kathy Barnett first, Dr. Oz second, and McCormick third. Then, if Barnett didn't get enough votes, your votes would then transfer over to Dr. Oz. So that's food for thought. I'm curious what people think of that. 800-848-WABC. The other interesting thing that's 800-848-9222 out of Pennsylvania is the race on the Democratic side of the ledger is absolutely not too close to call. John Fetterman, the lieutenant governor, who's a supporter of Bernie Sanders, won in a landslide. And the fella that I would have voted for if I could vote in that primary was Connor Lamb, the the congressman. Now, Connor Lamb would have been a lock to win a general election in a state like Pennsylvania. He's moderate. He's got a, a lot of bona fides that are popular with the pro-law enforcement crowd, the pro-military crowd. The you know he, He's very, very much a, a moderate, both in terms of tone and in terms of policy. But Democrats didn't want that. They elected or they nominated the most far-left person running, John Fetterman, who ironically just had a stroke last week. A younger guy, too. At least he looks like a younger guy. But he had a stroke, so he's not going to be at any election night parties today. We certainly wish him the best. But it really got me thinking, um, what a shame it is that states like Pennsylvania and New York do not allow independents, blanks, we call them in New York, or unaffiliated voters, as they call them in a lot of places, to vote in their primaries. Now... You could have independence vote in the in that primary. That wouldn't have made the difference with a landslide like the one that Fetterman had. But I think it would encourage both parties to nominate problem solvers, people that are willing to work with their counterparts on the other side of the aisle to actually get things done rather than just sow the seeds of division. The other uh, story uh, electorally that folks are paying some attention to is that... Um, Madison Cawthorn, the young man, the controversial 26-year-old congressman from North Carolina, has been defeated. He has conceded the race. He was backed by President Trump, and he is now lost to State Senator Chuck Edwards. Uh, he's been a source, uh, Cawthorn, has been a source of a great deal of controversy. He's been criticized by the House leaders and in the, in, uh, the Republican House leaders for all sorts of actions, like trying to bring a gun through airport security and uh, the release of a a sex tape where he had some women's undergarments on, all sorts of weird stuff. Um, He said a lot of controversial things. So I'm not – he had one scandal after another. I'm not terribly surprised to see him go down uh, to defeat. But the the narrative that you're going to hear all day today with all these Monday morning quarterbacks – oh, and just in now – Uh, Another Trump backed candidate, Bo Hines, won the Republican nomination for a a North Carolina House seat, which leads me to the next thing I was going to say. All of the Monday morning quarterbacking that you're going to hear on radio and TV today or at the water cooler or in the newspapers or anybody that acts like they know what they're talking about. It's all going to revolve upon spinning Trump's endorsements. Trump has made more endorsements. This election cycle than I think any former or current president in, in maybe in history, at least for a primary. And you compare the number of endorsements Trump has made to what Biden has made. There's no comparison. Trump endorsed everywhere. He, he endorsed the school board elections here in New York today. There's races on the library budget. I feel like Trump made endorsements in the library budget races. He didn't really. But it wouldn't surprise me if he did. So today you're going to hear a lot of people saying, oh, oh, this person won, that person won, this person won. That shows you Donald Trump is still just as popular as ever with Republicans. And then you're going to have other people say, well, no, 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 no. You got uh, Cawthorn lost and this person lost and this person lost. That shows you Trump is losing his hold on the Republican electorate. All of that analysis is totally meaningless. It's... B.S. It's Barbra Streisand. It's nonsense. Now, there is not a Republican running in America today in a Republican district that wouldn't want to have Donald Trump's endorsement. So because one Trump backed candidate might lose, one might win, this one might win, that one might lose. It does not affect at all the fact that Trump is the most popular Republican in America today. Even people like Willard Mitt Romney have uh, have uh, acknowledged that. But when you're talking about individual elections and individual races, you take all sorts of things into account. You don't think the fact that Madison Cawthorn tried to bring a gun through airport security may be said to a couple of people in his district, well, I'm not sure this guy's exactly balanced enough mentally to um, actually serve in Congress. So... Don't buy into this analysis of Trump is the responsible for this person winning or that person winning. People are reading too much into it. That's my contention. The difference right now, though, between Trump-backed Dr. Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania and uh, the, the Cruz-backed David McCormick in Pennsylvania is now about a 1,000 votes. Now, think about that. Hundreds of thousands of votes cast. In the st- in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, hundreds of thousands of votes, and right now there's about a thousand votes that separate the top two candidates. In my view, this shows how close elections really can be, and I really I really shake my head whenever I hear somebody say that um, their vote doesn't matter or why bother voting; it's not going to make a difference. Clearly, you don't think in Pennsylvania there were at least a 1,000 people that said that? That could have changed the outcome of this race, whatever the outcome ends up being? I uh, have no patience at all for that, that sort of of throw-in-the-towel-because-my-vote-doesn't-make-a-difference scenario. If you want to comment on the primaries today, if you have thoughts about my two cents of one, rank-choice voting would have been a benefit to everybody running, especially folks that – uh, voted for Kathy Barnett and then might have cost their second choice the election to, um, open primaries. I, I think we need more people like Connor Lamb and fewer people like John Fetterman, personally. 800 848 WABC. That's 800 848 9222. Uh, you will, I will take your calls in just a second. Now, let me tell you what's coming up. I'm very excited about today's show. For starters, we're going to obviously – I mean, I don't think you even need me to tell you this. You know we're going to be discussing these UFO hearings today, right? Uh, for the first time in a half a century, Congress has held these hearings on UFOs, uh, and I'm going to give you my analysis of it, and we'll play you some of the audio, some of the highlights of folks that testified before Congress yesterday. Really interesting stuff. Nothing groundbreaking. Spoiler alert, Nothing groundbreaking. Uh, But I think it's interesting just the fact that it was done. And we covered some of the significance of that with Jeremy Corbell yesterday. But in my ever, my ongoing mission to always be unpredictable and to do something different, you know who's going to join me today? We are going to be joined by Stephen Greenstreet from the New York Post. Stephen Greenstreet is probably one of America's... Most widely cited researchers and uFO debunkers, so let it never be said that we don't present all sort all points of view, so whether we 're talking about uh trade or Ukraine or uFOs I will go out of my way to try and find alternative points of view. Stephen Greenstreet is going to be here in the two o'clock hour, and we've paid a lot of attention on this show to big tech, and i'll be honest. I have thought to myself, maybe I'm too plugged in Um, because two things happen when my phone runs out of battery and I have no phone. One is I panic. I am absolutely in a panic. I'm beside myself. I realize that's unhealthy. And then after a while, if it goes more than an hour or so where I don't have my phone on me or I leave my phone in another room for a few hours. I really do get uh, ultimately a feeling of relief. So are we too plugged into technology? is big tech controlling too much of our lives. I'm going to discuss that with Andrew McDermott. He's a senior fellow at the uh, Discovery Institute and somebody that has been writing about these issues for a, a long time. He's a, he's been he's written for the New York Post as well, uh, for Newsmax and for a bunch of other a bunch of other publications. He's a fascinating guy and I'm looking forward to talking with him about whether or not big tech plays too much of a role in our lives. 800-848-92 two that's one eight hundred eight four eight WABC Frank is in Morristown hello Frank
3: hey what's up Frank uh yeah I to comment on some of these races I felt the same way with the Kathy Barnett thing I almost felt like I felt like they were sh- like they these some of these people like Hannity and uh, Laura Ingram and these guys they got to start coordinating more because then they're gonna end up they end up dividing vote exactly like you said and now mccormick might end up winning who is in the end probably the least mega right.
2: so right. now are you a trump supporter frank
4: Yes. yeah so
3: um you would
2: agree, I agree
4: he, with everything no, but, no, no
2: no no no, nobody as ed koch would say if you agree with me on 10 out of 10 issues you should see a psychiatrist but um so no but um in general so you voted for trump twice which i did as well You only, voted,
3: actually only once Oh, only once uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't get into politics until like They started locking everybody into their
2: houses. (laughs) I can understand that. Um, Now, uh, so you agreed with my analysis that McCormick, of those three candidates in the race, is the one that least embodies the kind of values that Trump supporters like.
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't know enough about him to say that. But just what I know of the other, I mean, to be honest, I don't have a problem with Dr. Oz, but I just don't see him as the guy. I think Trump should have picked – if you want my honest opinion, I think Sean Hannity uh, kind of forced Trump to endorse Dr. Oz without looking at the other options because I think Hannity is kind of like grooming Oz. Wants to him to be available for his show. Well, let's so put we always have him on the show.
2: Uh, let, let's put that theory aside. I I could tell you. Uh, well, well, we can talk about that later. But I could tell you, nobody nobody gets Donald Trump to do anything, <laughs> and that's well, the I, no, no, I don't think uh, you made but, him. But, but 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 let's put that aside. But so let's say let's say your analysis is on the money that the twenty three to twenty four percent of the people that end up voting for Kathy Barnett. They like Donald Trump a lot. And instead of voting for the candidate Trump endorsed, they voted for the one that um, sounded most rhetorically like Trump, both in terms of the issues and in terms of temperament. Then that would have led to McCormick slipping in, the least Trumpian candidate. And my view, that is a textbook perfect example of why we need ranked choice voting. Do you agree?
3: Yeah. Yeah, and actually, the way you explained I never <clears throat> I've heard Ranked explained before, and I think you just explained it a lot better than what I've heard in the past. And maybe I'm thinking of something else, but uh, I've heard people talk about Ranked choice before, but the way you just explained it earlier, uh, yeah, I'd be fine with that. And I think that that should be, you know, standard everywhere. But I also want to make one more comment uh, about Madison Cawthorn, because uh, he actually – he made a comment about, like, sexual things going on in D.C. and right. all that stuff. Right. And right after that, all these clips start coming out and pictures start coming out, like, off his own friend's cell phones. So you got to wonder. So you
2: think he was targeted because he took issue with the D.C. establishment and their behavior?
3: There has to be something there, because as soon as he came out and said stuff about cocaine and orgies and stuff, as soon as he came out and said that, then all these pictures start coming out that the base, none of the base cared about any of that stuff that came out. It was all just, you know, B.S. There was nothing of substance there. There was nothing actual, you know, he he didn't do anything wrong. He's a kid. The kid's 26 years old. He grew up in the age of technology. What do you expect? You know what I mean? Yeah, he, he I, I, I get it, Frank. Photos.
2: I get it. Thank you, Frank. Appreciate the call and uh, your listenership. So I see we still have this phone issue, which I don't understand how this can be. I really, I really don't. I don't understand why we're not protesting outside of Verizon's office. Where is James Cromwell? Look, I want to get James Cromwell to glue himself to the lobby at Verizon until the police come, until they, and demand that they fix these phone lines. I cannot understand. How we, the most listened to talk station in the country, can't get Verizon to fix our damn phone lines. I cannot even tell you. I am a mild-mannered guy. I am a guy that, that takes things in stride. I am a cool customer. I, I think, um, you know, Philippe and Matt Blaze will tell you, that, you know, while well, other hosts would be panicking about this or that, oh my God, the caller said Baba Booey on the air, get him off the air, get him off the air. I take it all in stride. I don't care about any of this. I don't, not that I don't care, but I don't let it get to me. This phone situation, every time I hear, in, uh, say, every other word is, is clicked out, it makes me want to bang my head against this table. It, it really, I, I almost, and again, I'm not a violent guy. And I realize it's not our equipment, it's Verizon. It, I almost wanted to throw this phone across the room. I, I'm going to go crazy. If this phone situation is not resolved quickly, I'm going to go crazy. This will not be a pleasant show to listen to. Uh, well, actually, you won't have to worry about understanding what anyone's saying because you won't be able to hear it because every other word is getting clipped out. It's killing me. It's killing me. Please. To the powers that be at Verizon. Frank, we fix have the power. Fix our phones. Fix our phones. I don't know what we have to do. Do we need to get, um, what's your name, who played Gloria on All in the Family, Sally Struthers, to do a series of infomercials where she walks around impoverished community and says, for only 99 cents a day for the price of a cup of coffee today, a day you can get Verizon to get up off their duff and fix what's wrong with our phones.
5: Oh, wow, it's horrible. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. It's horrible.
2: And why am I the only one that's, that cares? Or maybe I'm the only one that, that dares to say it. I brought ah. this up with our owner, John Katsimatidis, yesterday. And you know what he said? He said, yeah, get it fixed. Get it fixed. And yet, here we are.
6: <sighs> time after time after right, time. I'm after leaving. Time after I'm time.
2: Leaving. All right. Um, uh, let me say hello to uh, Wilford
4: in Newark. Hello, Wilford. Hello. they rank choice voting, didn't you say they vote and you vote for different people and whoever, and you add it all up, the votes they
2: got, that's the winner? Yeah, well, so the way rank choice voting w- works is you rank your choices, right? You, so let's say there's five candidates running. Uh, well, let's keep, let's make it easy. Let's say it's um, let's say it's Matt Blaise, Philippe and me. We're all running for governor. Right. Or whatever. Um, right. If, if any of us get the most votes, if any of if any of us get a majority of the vote, 50 percent plus right. one, that's it. The election's over. That person wins. But we don't want a situation where Philippe gets 20% of the vote and then uh, Matt Blaze gets um, 35% of the vote and I get 45% of the vote and slip in. Because what does that mean? That means a majority of the people voting don't want me. So instead, what Ranked Choice Voting allows is for you to rank Philippe once, Matt, Matt Blaze two, and Frank third. And, oh, okay, Frank didn't get the most votes. Uh, All the people that then voted for me, your votes would transfer over to your second choice. To me, I mean, look, it's not a perfect system at all. But uh, to me, it's a far better system than having the person that
4: nobody wants to win these elections winning. Yeah, but don't you think the person that's most known, he'd be getting all in second votes?
2: (laughs) Well, but why wouldn't that be the person that gets the most votes to begin with
4: now? No, what I'm saying is if you do the ranked choice vote and you say you vote one for one and one for two and one for three, right? But what I'm saying is the one that's got the the most notarized name, people would just vote for him because right. they wouldn't know about the other guy. Right, but Wilfred, yeah. if, if you have
2: a candidate where that everybody knows one candidate and nobody knows the other candidates, chances are that's the candidate that's going to win anyway, currently. Right.
4: You see, yeah, that's true, but... But I don't know. That it change things. I think that way you can manipulate it some way.
2: Well, look. Uh, I'm not going to say you can't manipulate it. You can manipulate anything. That's for sure. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. We're going to talk with David McDermott in just a minute. John is in Reno, Nevada. Hello, John.
5: Hey, Frankie. How you uh, doing? Pretty good. How
2: are you doing? I- I'm wonderful, John. What's on your mind? Well, uh, you
7: know, I just looked at the latest results. And it looks like Oz is going to win.
2: Well, he's uh, leading. Oz he's is- leading. He's, but he's leading by a thousand yeah. votes.
7: Yeah, uh, you know, I think the mailings will favor him as well, though.
2: Well, you might be right. You might be right. How do you think he'll do
7: against Fetterman? Do you think he can beat Fetterman? You know,
2: actually, I do. I think Barnett would have lost to Fetterman. Uh, I think Oz, I, look, and again, I cautioned Judge Weinberg when we were talking off air yesterday morning that I'm always wrong when it comes to predicting these things. But I think Oz has some crossover appeal from his time as a TV doctor. And I think Fetterman is going to be very easy to portray as a Bernie Sanders acolyte. So I think, I think Oz actually will beat Fetterman.
8: Yeah, I hope so.
2: Well, thank you, John. Hey, Robert is in Philadelphia. He voted, I guess, yesterday in Pennsylvania. Robert, uh, what was your experience like voting?
0: Um, It was kind of cool, to be honest with you, Frank. I am 58, and it was the first um, primary I've ever voted in. You're kidding. (laughs)
2: How come you never voted in a primary before?
0: Um, Well, it's a short story. I was young when I became a Republican. Bush turned me into an independent. Which Bush? Which Bush? The first one.
2: Ah, I see. You didn't like Bush.
0: And Trump kind of brought me back home. Yeah. I, 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 get I, get said, I didn't vote for eyes. I went with McCormick um, and I went with McSwain instead of Mastriano. Um, and I'm going to vote for Trump. But that doesn't mean that, you know, this is Pennsylvania and he picks the guy he thinks to win. And that's cool. And that's what primaries are all about. Um and I'll just be happy to vote for the Republican nominee, whoever it is, in November. Well, That's the bottom line uh, for me. And
2: I'm sorry. I, no, no, it's OK. I appreciate you sharing that perspective, Robert, because that's exactly what I was trying to say. People that are trying to make these primaries um, a one way or another, a referendum on Trump. I don't think they understand that people like you, while you might be a Trump supporter, you have your own uh, independent mind and you're able to make your own decisions. And while Trump's yeah. uh, Trump support might play a role, it doesn't mean that you blindly follow Trump with whomever he endorses.
0: Goodness no, um, but to your first two questions, um, I would rather see a runoff than rank file voting, um, and open primaries are a non-starter for me. As a Republican, I do not want non-Republicans choosing my nominee.
2: Even though you were a non-Republican for years, yes. Well, so
0: I, he, and. And I paid for that by not participating in the primaries. Well,
2: two things, Uh, two two things, and they're both um, financial related. And then I want to try and get some other people in before we get to um, uh, Angela McDermott. Two things. One, when you were an independent and and you couldn't participate in the primaries, um, I can understand if the Republicans were a private club and they wanted to pick among themselves only, say, the dues-paying members of the private (laughs) club – Who their nominee was, I can understand that. But the bottom line is, Robert, when you were an independent, your taxes, your tax dollars were being used to pay for that election. So why should you be forced to pay for an election that you're not even able to participate in?
0: Uh, Well, I am able to participate in if I'm a member of the party. Well, yeah, I mean, in in China, theoretically, I don't have
2: an interest in China. You can be a part of the government as long as you're a communist. Now, there are those of us that don't want to join either party that say we shouldn't have to sacrifice our values in order to do it. Um, you run off voting. There's a lot of people that favor that. Again, my reason primarily for opposing it is for the cost. I don't want to pay for the I cost love your, of a second election. I love your opinion. Go ahead.
0: I'm sorry, Frank. I love your opinions, and I love your show, and I love kicking this around with you, and I hope you have a good night, man.
2: Thanks, Robert. Appreciate it. I was just going to say on the runoff front, I don't want to pay for the cost of a second election when um, you don't have to, when an instant runoff does the same thing. Uh, 800-848-WABC. John is in New Jersey. Hello, John.
6: Hey, what's up, Frank?
8: Um, So uh, with all the talk about voting and everything, it makes me wonder, like, I'm kind of scared about this coming up election. Like, the primaries are one thing, but then when we go past that, with all the crap happened in 2020, whether you believe it was rigged, whatever, a lot of things happened. And I feel like uh, this time around, the Democrats figured out how to rig the system, especially with big tech, with, with everything. Don't you gonna steal the election again um, well, and make a favor one way you know
2: I'm gonna comment on that a, a little later John but no I, I don't think look election fraud g- takes place in every election I don't think there's going to be enough election fraud in order to alter the outcome in in most races now we have seen that in North Carolina there was a North Carolina congressional election that um, was thrown out because of fraud, and they had to have, uh, find a new election. And there are other examples. There are about six or seven other recent examples where there was rampant, you know, where there was fraud that could have made a difference or where people went to jail, one of the two. But what those examples show me is that when the fraud is so obvious that they can actually catch people, in the case of the North Carolina people, you had folks that were working on behalf of that Republican candidate that was trying to steal that election, that they, they, to their credit, Turned on him. They testified against him. So I do think that when fraud is blatant enough to make a difference or large-scale enough to make a difference, that you can catch those folks, usually. Usually. Uh, before we get to uh, Andrew, let me say hello to Jimmy in New City. Hello, Jimmy. Hey,
7: Brent. how are you, Doing great. Um, have you considered that... Um, I'm losing my training of thought here, but I, you introduced me to Dominic. I first want to say that maybe we can get back on track. And we've—I've uh, just met a gentleman of gentlemen, and uh, we've had a nice uh, week or two together working together. And a great family they are.
9: Wait, a week um, or two?
7: Um, this is some tree. Well, yeah, I, I, remember you passed the phone number along? He yeah, had the tree dilemma, and um,
2: yes, you yes, I do. my
7: information to him.
2: Yes, yes, I do.
7: And yeah, we sent them that, but um. Like, the same thing with, like, Biden, intentionally, like, trying to hurt things. Can you go back two subjects back to what you were saying, and I will explain the exact same, thing. how there's intentional, you know, uh, what, what are we talking Verizon
5: about?
7: Oh, Verizon. Have you thought about this with Verizon, that there are the same thing just like to bounce Trump out? Have you considered that there... Got a couple of people in there trying to, you know, do the same thing, like stifle your information. Oh, or I
2: interesting. Mean,
7: well, I think that that's very simplistic, and I think that that's, you know, what's going on, honestly.
2: Hey, uh, it could be. Uh, I, you know what? It's as good of it as any other explanation I've uh, I've heard, so it could be.
7: I mean, it's simple, and, you know, could be bottom-level employees, but, they, you know, I think that that's as simple as that. Like, these guys will do anything, to, yeah. you know, to start. Uh, the the proper words that are coming out of your mouth and you know your message is
2: simple well that is an interesting theory Jimmy uh, I, uh, right. I and it's one that I hadn't thought of I got to be honest that's a good one thank you right. Jimmy and I'm glad you it's, it's going that, out these
7: people do anything we all know that well thank you,
2: know? you Jimmy I'm glad it's working out well with Dominic the thing that I don't understand then is why then on the on the hour that Anthony Weiner is on and he has a very different perspective the phones don't work in that hour either. So I don't understand – wouldn't they allow the left-wing shows to continue unabated? By the way, if you're one of the people at Verizon that's conspiring against me or against the radio station, please reach out to me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Maybe we can work out a deal under the table. So you could take a break from disrupting our broadcast at least for four hours a morning. Andrew McDermott, uh, from the, the uh, columnist for The New York Post, columnist for Newsmax, and a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute, joins me straight ahead.
8: That makes me want to shout I got something That tells me what it's all about
10: I got soul And I'm super bad I got soul And I'm super
2: bad that's James Brown singing Super Bad. Uh, if you ever want to know what music we're playing on this show, you could join our Facebook group, uh, Murano Radio Fans and Haters. Just search Murano Radio Fans and Haters. Um, somebody that will probably be unhappy with my encouraging you to. Uh, join our Facebook group is Andrew uh, McDermott. He is a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute. He also serves as a media relations specialist and assistant to CSC director Stephen Meyer. He's been a columnist whose work has appeared in uh, the New York Post, the Houston Chronicle, the American Spectator, also writes a uh, techno uh, column for Newsmax, and he's been trying to uh, encourage people to live authentically in in the digital age, and uh, somebody that I've become kind of a fan of. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us on the radio.
11: Frank, it's a delight to be with you. Well,
2: the delight is mine. First, I think I owe you an apology. It appears in my tweet that I tagged the wrong Andrew McDermott. Is that accurate?
11: Yeah, I'm a McDermott. Uh, I wanted Andrew McDermott, but it was already taken. But no no sweat. Well the guy
2: that has um Andrew McDermott instead of A McDermott has 43 followers on Twitter. You can't make some sort of a deal with him under the table to get the get get that <laughs> handle back.
11: You know, maybe we could combine our efforts. There you go. There you go. Uh but again,
2: you're you know probably less connected to big tech than than some other people so uh so maybe you don't mind it as uh, as much. Now, um I read this fascinating piece that you wrote. In the uh, New York Post, I think it was originally, about how big tech is controlling our lives. How exactly is big tech controlling our lives?
11: Well, you know, I came across uh, the writings of, um, considered to be my friend now, Jacques Ellul. He was a French uh, sociologist and theologian, philosopher of technology. And I was reading his book, written in 1954, called The Technological Society. And I was just eating it up because... He was he was predicting, basically, what was going to happen, what we were going to see here in the future, and indeed we are seeing it. Um, he talks about a phenomenon called technique, and we can go into it as we discuss this here, but basically, you know, it started out as something harmless, you know, hundreds of years ago, but as we added machines to our lives, uh, technique kind of became uh, more important, especially those who were wielding the the power behind the machines and, and what it was doing to human life. Um, but I'll answer your question right right from the get-go here. You know, there's, some, there's a lot of examples of, of how big tech use technique, which is basically their methods of uh, manipulating our choices and, you know, uh, guiding us toward a, a chosen end. Um, it can be simple things, you know, uh, like Apple taking away the home button on the iPhone. I mean, how many iterations of the iPhone did we go through and get used to that home button that would take us home, you know, if we did something wrong? And all of a sudden, boom! It was gone. Well, so explain that to we me to...
2: if you could, Andrew, because I'm not um, I'm not an iPhone guy, and I know a lot of our audience is. Um, but so there was a home button, and now it's not there. And why did they do that?
11: Well, again, once you understand technique, you you really this will really click for you. Got it. Um, but yeah, they they had a home button, just a a, a physical button at the bottom of the screen. It wasn't actually part of the screen. And that brought you home. No matter what you were doing, uh, it just took you home. So people got used to that. But with the introduction of, I believe it was the 11 uh, or maybe the 10, they took it away. And now we have to interact with the screen in some new ways in order to to manipulate our apps and get back to the, the main menu.
2: You also cite the example of the Netflix autoplay situation. I've noticed that if you watch a show, uh, it'll immediately start playing the next episode unless you press something to stop it. Or even if the show is over, if you finish the, the series, it'll play a similar show on autoplay. In theory, you don't even have to hit a button ever. You could just let it play on forever.
11: Right, right. Yeah, that, that's one of my pet peeves. You know, I gave up Netflix uh, about a year ago. Uh, just the content is just not there for me. But, but th- this this issue of, you know, just not giving us time to think between shows, mm. you know, and, and it's the whole binge-watching concept, you know. Yeah, bring it on. Keep going. Keep going. But where do we have the time to just for a few seconds think, well, gee, should I go to bed? Uh, you know, should I be writing some plans for tomorrow? You know, uh, we, we all... Those 30 seconds that the credits run, those are hours, you know, to think about what we want to do next. And uh, Netflix took that away from us. Uh,
2: So when we talk about technique as it relates to technology, is this a concerted strategy on the part of the big tech companies to keep us constantly plugged in and make sure we don't do something like go and read a book or go for a jog uh, before the next episode of Ozark starts?
11: Yeah, unfortunately, uh, they have come to use technique um, to our disadvantage. You know, the designers and programmers and, and teams that are behind our, our technology uh, companies today, and all the platforms and gadgets—they know human psychology. They know how we click. They know they know what drives us. They know what brings us back for more, and they put that into our into the apps, into the games. You know. I don't want to make them sound evil but they, they they do this so that we come back and so that we get uh, so that they get the attention and the money and just uh, the things that they want from us the data in many cases yeah it's it's on purpose um and they they've just learned to use this over the years
2: so uh, i guess the the biggest question is should we turn off should we tune out should we put down our smartphones log off of facebook uh... Discontin- cut the cord on on netflix should we turn off these screens
11: well frank that's a good question and i am not somebody who is a technophobe who wants us all to run to the woods and live in a cabin with you know off the grid I'm not for that you know i love technology i love i love that god who i consider to be the original technician He he created us with technology in our mother's womb and it's because of that that we can now uh, do our own technology. And as I point out in the post, the word technology actually means our art, our skill, our craft in action. So really, it's all about us, you know, rather than tell people, hey, turn it off, you know, I'm actually saying, look, let's let's reset our boundaries with technology. Let's renew our understanding of what technology actually is, you know, and how it's all about us and how it can unlock our potential. And let's do it, you know. Let's use technology wisely.
2: You write that, we and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Andrew Meek-Diarmut. He's a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute. You write that we need to go from being passive users to the bosses of our own technology. How do we do that?
11: Yeah, that's a great Question. How do we reset uh, our boundaries and how do, how do we go about it? Well, um, let me throw out a few things. You know, Jacques Ellul, the, the Frenchman I keep talking about uh, in my writing, and, you know, he, he talked about having a counter power to any entity that uses its power or dominion to erode our humanity, whether that's the government, the technicians, or the tech gadgets themselves. You know, we have a counter power that we can utilize. Uh, one actionable thing I'll throw out there is take back your morning and your night, you know, commit to turning off your smartphone and other screens one hour before you go to bed. And the first hour you wake up, those are sacred moments. Time to think about the day's experiences, think about what you'll do and why pray, meditate, read, reflect, you know, it's time for you to think. And if you have tech filling that, you're going to do less thinking.
2: You know, that that Um, is a, that is a, a very, I think, easily achievable, but somewhat difficult uh, goal to start with. And, you know, I, I'm thinking of my own self. I can't tell you how many mornings um, or afternoons, because I wake up in the afternoon, how many afternoons I wake up and I race to get through the 500 emails that have been sent to me since last I looked at my phone or my computer. And it is a very um, stressful way to start the morning because everyone has an urgent crisis that needs immediate addressing. Uh, so maybe I will try that starting tomorrow.
11: Yeah, yeah. Frank's day needs to start with Frank. You know, mm. not everybody who's trying to get to Frank and not, not what big tech wants you to see about what's going on in the world. You know, you just need to start your day with you. And if you believe in a maker, with your maker and your family, you know, start it off right. And then then at the end of the day, you know, we're tempted to just keep looking through stuff and keep checking stuff. You just got to put it away. Uh, the power button our best friend, you know, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but a lot of gadgets don't even come with power buttons anymore mm. or they don't tell you how to turn it off. Right. You know, they just want you to put it to sleep. Well, we need to have more control than that. You know,
2: there's been a lot of criticism from uh, of the big tech companies for a bunch of reasons. A lot of folks on the right have criticized the issue of censorship and uh, not uh, allowing proper free speech. Folks on the left have brought up a variety of antitrust issues and folks across the political spectrum have talked about how uh, these social media apps like Instagram can actually be very damaging to the mental health of young people because they create an aspirational attitude uh, towards perfection when nobody's perfect. Do you share any or all of those criticisms of these big tech companies?
11: Yes, I, I do share quite a few of them. You know, the struggle is real to to use that cliche. Um, you know, this this is something we're grappling with, you know. The smartphone barely came out in two thousand seven, you know. That that isn't long ago. So we are we are just starting to understand how this stuff is, is affecting us and we're looking at the next generation and we're seeing the mental health issues. I heard you interviewing someone recently on your show about about just the 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 change in, in risk for adolescents, you know, they, they don't go out as much, they don't have as much sex, they don't, you know, they, they're they not seeing real people because they're interacting virtually. And I read in, in one study that the more virtual interaction you get, the less you want it in real life. Mm. And that to me is the scariest thing, you know, and so just, just taking that upon yourself to first be aware of how big tech is shaping your desires through our screens and through the platforms we use. And then just saying, look, I'm the boss here, you know, I'm going to lay down the law. I'm going to purge what I don't want and what I don't need and what's not going to benefit me. And then the most exciting thing, and I think the thing that ties in with your uh, focus, Frank, on creativity is just unleashing your potential. You know, you can do more when you're doing less through big tech.
2: So uh, other than um, turning off everything at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day, what else can we do to unleash our creativity and our own potential and so that it 's not conditioned by this uh, electronic um, th- th- you know this electronic mouse pellet that we're we 're consuming
11: yeah, sure, well, you know make a list i mean make an actual list if you want to, just just survey your current gadgets, your subscriptions, platforms, anything tech related, and just ask yourself, you know how is this affecting my time, my energy, my relationships, my mind, my body, my soul. Uh, and you can also ask, how can I weave something useful and good for myself with this tech tool, you know? And if something doesn't fit the bill, you know, just cut it, you know, say goodbye to it um, and see how you feel. You know, after a while, you hear stories of people who have ditched their phone for a week or a month or even a couple of days. And they start to get a clarity in their head that we don't have when we're surrounded with this stuff all the time.
2: Can Elon Musk be a part of the solution if he does end up taking control of Twitter?
11: Well, I, you know, in my, in my article for the post, I, I said that what he's doing is a step in the right direction for Twitter. You know, this is a digital public square. Uh, we all need to have a voice there. And I think he is more aligned with, with, with true free speech and what that looks like legally and, and morally so i do think it's it's time for a change in leadership at twitter i think they got too used to being the arbiter of truth and just deciding who who gets a voice whose voice is louder they're using algorithms to throttle certain people and not others you know it's that's all unfair to do all that behind the curtain like the wizard of oz you know you, you've got to have someone who can be more open and transparent and who can align themselves with true free speech. So I do think it's a step in the right direction, unless it gets derailed. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, so you must be just thrilled about the prospect of all of us plugging into the metaverse and never having to go outside at all, right?
11: Well, I'll tell you, you know, the metaverse is going to be really appealing. and I And I'm not going to say it's not going to be appealing to me at times, too. But... What I will say is that every moment we spend in a virtual world is one last moment or minute that we can spend in the real world. So that's all I would ask people when it comes to the metaverse is, look, take that into consideration. Think about the virtual world versus the real world. Where are you going to live and die? You know, where are you going to leave your mark? Um, So that's what I would say regarding the metaverse. It's going to be very appealing, but... It's it's definitely something we need to have limits on, and and so if if we can reassess our relationship with tech now before Metaverse hits us full on, then I think we're mm-hmm. going to be in better shape.
2: Uh, Andrew McDermott, thanks so much for the uh, for the time this morning. Uh, thanks for your great work. I'll look forward to talking with you again soon, maybe even in person. Absolutely. Who knows?
11: Absolutely. Thanks very much. Thank you.
2: If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can give me a call, 1 800 848 WABC. That's 800 848 9222. Uh, When you call, repeat every word that you say three times. So this way, if every third word gets cut off, I'll still understand what you're saying. 800 848 9222. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead.
1: We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano.
10: What's going cool on? You say,
8: me okay are yeah. yeah. no. Now
6: I've got a
10: confession. Ha, 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 ha. When I was young, I wanted attention. Ha, 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 ha. And I was myself, i would doing it, anything i I we all want
4: This is the Culture Cat
2: Dolls. Um, yesterday was, uh, an interesting day. Uh, I did this show for four hours, one to five, and then they asked me, sort of last minute, um, they said, Sid Rosenberg had sort of an emergency. Do you want to do the morning show with uh, John Katsimatidis? I said, sure. Um, I love being on the radio. I'm always complaining I don't get enough airtime, right? And then it's a good opportunity to get more exposure with people that are normally asleep at this time. And it's a fun opportunity to work with John, who, in addition to being our boss, is my friend and somebody that, um, that uh, I, uh, you know, enjoy being on the radio with. So... um but everyone recognizes that it's a long day. And, uh, I mean, it's eight hours of radio with only one hour off. And it's not really an hour off. It's an hour that I use to prepare for the second four-hour shift. So um, as, you know, John kept asking me towards the end, you know, are you all right? Are you going to be okay? Um, how do you feel? Are you tired? I said, no, John, I'm good. He said, you know, how are you getting home? Are you driving? I said, Yeah. He said, "Well, if you want, you can leave your car here and I'll send you an Uber home." I said, "No, nah, I got my car here. I'll just I'll, I I'll take my uh, I'll take my car. I have a lot of calls to make on the way home. That's that'll keep me awake." Now, yesterday, the previous day, what day is today? It took me I was shocked to learn that today was Wednesday. I could have sworn that today was Thursday. And you should have seen me trying to arrange meetings today. I said, well, if we can do a conference call at this and then I'm inviting you to an event at night and I'm on a group text and someone said, no, that event is Thursday, tomorrow's Wednesday. They said today is Tuesday, meaning yesterday. I said, what? How could today be Tuesday? Sure enough, turned out that person was right. It was Tuesday. I was shocked. So on Monday night, I was running late coming into here. Not late, but, you know, I like to be here at least two hours before the show gives me enough time to get everything done that I have to get done. And I had not a lot of gasoline, less than a quarter of a tank, but the the light was not yet on, the light that indicates you don't have a lot of gasoline. So that's okay. Now, I live by the least expensive gas station in my borough. And so I was going to say, you know, I drove past it because I didn't want to stop. I said, that's okay. I'll, I'll get gas when I'm on my way home. And then all of a sudden, I'm getting here, and this needle is at E. And then the needle is below E. When I took my car to the parking garage yesterday morning, because you can only park on the street for so long, I was concerned that I might run out of gas taking it to the parking garage. So finally, I get my car back. It's around ten thirty at this point. I said, "Boy, I hate to do it, but I'm gonna have to get gas here in Manhattan. You'd you never want to do because gas costs a fortune in Manhattan." I said, well, "Let me just get enough so that I could get to my home borough, and you know, try and get some gasoline there at a reasonable price." So I, I pull into this station, six fifty a gallon, six fifty a, da- a gallon cash. Uh, and I think it was something like seven twenty-five a gallon credit. Now I was using cash, and the line was around the block, around the block. So just to get to a pump was just something. And then they said, "All right, go there." And, and this is a lengthy process. And the guy warns me, the gas station attendant warns me. He said, "All right, I'm going to warn you." And the only thing they had at this particular gas station available was full serve, not self serve. And I love the self serve. With apologies to my New Jersey brethren. And he says, I'm going to warn you, these pumps take a long, long time. Now, I'm out of gas. I have no more options. And I I said, All right, okay. So it takes a long time. So he starts pumping. I start falling asleep in the car. And about 10 minutes go by. You know how much gas is pumped? $4.29. $4.29. So he says, I'm sorry, we have to reset these machines. Still not, it's not working. We have to reset the machines. Could take a while. They reset the machines. That takes another 10 minutes. They reset the machines. The machines are not going any faster. So for me to get $20 worth of gasoline more, this whole process of me at this gas station was 40 minutes. So I wasn't tired until I got to that gas station, and then it was a struggle staying awake to drive home. But I made it. I got the gas, overpriced as it was, as long as it took, got the gas. Until next hour, help control the pet population, get your dog or cat spayed or neutered.
1: This is the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano.
2: Well, for the first time in over 50 years, Congress on Tuesday held its first hearings on what we used to call UFOs, what we now call UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. Uh, Very, very interesting. The House Intelligence Committee's Counterterrorism, Counterintelligence, and Counterproliferation Subcommittee um, spent a lot of time Speaking with Pentagon officials about all of these sightings. Now, here's what I found most interesting. There were there were a couple of key takeaways. We had been talking to you about, for a year, since the D- Director of National Intelligence report last year, the DNI report, we had been talking to you about 144 sightings confirmed by the military in which the military indicated they did not know what these subjects were. So I was listening to the Cats at Night show the other day, and um, one of the people on the show said, I don't believe in UFOs, which is such a silly thing to say. You could say you don't believe in aliens, you don't believe in extraterrestrial visitors from another planet, fine, okay. But you can't say you don't believe in UFOs, because all a UFO is, or a UAP... It's something that's unidentified or unexplained. And the military itself is saying, we can't identify these, we can't explain. But the military's UFO database now has information not from 144 incidents, but from 400 incidents. That is up from 144 assessed in a report a year ago. That is what a Navy intelligence officials told lawmakers at this hearing. The military's report a year ago said no evidence of aliens had been found. And uh, today, or yesterday, Scott Bray, the deputy director of Naval Intelligence, told lawmakers they still haven't uncovered anything non-terrestrial in origin, even though there are incidents they can't explain. None of the documented objects had attempted to communicate with U.S. aviators and no attempt had been made to communicate with them, he said, as they all appeared to be unmanned. That's what they said. So reports of UAP have been increasing. And the Pentagon cited a couple of different reasons. They said, look, we have improved sensors. Uh, There are a lot more drones around. There are a lot of people flying drones And there are other non-military unmanned aerial systems and aerial clutter. So wherever you come down on this question, and I think most reasonable people come down on the side of uncertainty, not being sure what's out there, because we don't know what's out there. We just know there are a bunch of objects that military pilots are seeing that we can't explain. So... That's really the question. It's not do the do UFOs or UAPs exist. It's what are they? Is it something our own government is doing? Is it something an, an a, a rival government is doing, like Russia or China, or is it something otherworldly? That's the question, and that's what we a do not know, and b didn't get any closer to getting information from or we didn't get in any answers from yesterday. I'm curious if you saw these hearings and if you did, what your take was. Uh, I didn't expect there was going to be anything groundbreaking. To me, the groundbreaking aspect of it was just that they were being had for the first time in a half a century. So uh, the there was an interesting column in uh, NBC News by Rizwan Virk, who's... Um, founder of Play Labs at MIT. And this column essentially says that the mistake that Congress made is focusing only on the national security aspect of things, because the hearing did reinforce one of the most limiting aspects of the government's exploration of UAP, only investigating them as a national security threat. Well, it's good that This is from the NBC News column. While it's good that Congress is finally taking this subject seriously, the hearing itself didn't do enough to challenge the limiting aspect of this. And the chairman of this subcommittee, Andre Carson, very interesting guy. He led the hearing. He said ahead of time that its aim was to explore the issue as both a national security threat and an interest of, of great importance to the American public. So, um, and other politicians have said the same thing, Marco Rubio and others. Yesterday's hearing, if you didn't watch it, and again, if you did see it, I'd be curious about your take, Eight hundred eight four eight 848 wabc But if you didn't watch it, it was just as inconclusive as last year's report, partly because a lot of answers could only be given during the classified portion of the hearing. So who knows? Maybe more went on behind closed doors than we're aware of. Now, I do take great pride, whether we're talking guests or callers, in showcasing all points of view, whether it's the Ukraine situation, whether it's uh, political points of view, whether it's uh, whatever, best Star Trek captain, best Seinfeld episode, whatever. I try to allow all voices to be heard from both guests and callers. Now, I think you've listened to this show enough to know where I come down. I do believe that there's a strong possibility that there's an extraterrestrial explanation for these devices being seen out there. But what we're going to do in about 15 minutes is talk with someone named Stephen Greenstreet, who is probably the best-known skeptic of UFOs or UAPs out there. He's a debunker. He debunks, debunks, debunks. Although, you know what I don't understand? In in his Twitter handle, he says essentially that he was the former director of ATIP, which I don't understand. I don't know how he could be. The the ATIP was, we learned in that New York Times article five years ago, although it was disputed by Jeremy Corbell yesterday, we learned in that New York Times article five years ago that A-Tip was the, the Pentagon's UFO watching program. So I don't understand how Green Street can say that he's a director of A-Tip and, uh, or former director of A-Tip and then also be a skeptic. He's got a, very, um, he's got a lot of interesting columns and videos on the New York Post website where he goes out of his way to try and debunk this stuff. Uh, unless he became a skeptic because he worked at ATIP. tip I'll, I'll explore it with him when we talk to him in, in uh, 20 minutes. But I'd like to hear from you what your impressions were of this hearing today or yesterday. 800-848-WABC. Scott Bray, the Deputy Director of Navy Intelligence, spoke at
12: the hearing. This is what he said. Since the early 2000s, uh, we have seen an increasing number of unauthorized and or unidentified aircraft or objects in military areas uh, and training ranges and other designated airspace. Reports of sightings are frequent and continuing. We attribute this increase in reporting to a number of factors, including our work to destigmatize reporting, an increase in the number of new systems, such as quadcopters and unmanned aerial systems that are in our airspace, uh, identification of what we can classify as clutter, mylar balloons, and other types of, uh, of air trash, and improvements in the capabilities of our various sensors to detect things in our airspace.
2: The thing he left out there, obviously, extraterrestrials. Scott Bray uh, talks about some of the videos that they simply can't identify.
12: It looks uh, reflective in this video, somewhat reflective, uh, and it quickly passes by uh, the cockpit of the uh, of the aircraft. And is this one of the phenomena that we can't explain? I do not have an explanation for what this this specific. Uh, uh, object is. When I say uh, we can't explain, I, I mean exactly as you described there, that there is a lot of information uh, like the video that we showed in which there's simply too little data uh, to to create a reasonable explanation. When I say unexplained, I mean everything from too little, too little data uh, to we simply, the data that we have doesn't point us towards an explanation.
8: I,
2: um, so there you have it. That's basically, that was the tenor of the whole hearing. Today, Tell me if you disagree. 800 Congressman Tim Burkett was not at all impressed uh, by this. He was. He has been very vocal on this issue. He's been on with John Katz and Matidis. We've been trying to get him on this show, uh, and we're going to keep trying. But um, he was not impressed at the footage that was shown at the hearing, and he explained why.
13: For them to show that lame video... When you can you can find all this out there that's out there, and I've talked to Navy pilots. That are in there at the same time, Navy pilot, and 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 that's the kind of people you need to have in here for testimony. <laughs> and when we have video from from Navy pilots uh, from their wing cameras, for goodness' sake, that, that seems bring to those guys in here. Yeah, it seems to raise a question and if they've and, got and, 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 and by telling you that they have. You know, whistleblower protection or something—that's bogus. Until it's in the law, for us to sit here and talk about it is bogus. And 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 you really need to provide them with some some sort of uh, ability to be come in here and not be persecuted and not have a blemish on their records.
2: So that's what he said. Uh, We got to get him on the show. I'm going to reach out to him again tomorrow. Hopefully, he essentially says uh, that uh, he didn't learn anything. From the hearing yesterday.
10: We get any closer to answers today?
13: Absolutely not. I think the, the cover-up continued. The video they showed uh, was was uh, 30 seconds long, and they couldn't even slow it down to show the one frame that was supposed to show that evidence. Uh, go back to the it's uh, Tic Tac video <clears throat> where the Navy pilots are actually describing what's going on. That's the person we should have had. We had a Navy pilot there, and he wasn't even testifying. So I think that um, I think it continues to be a cover up. I I don't have the answers, but I'll tell you, they're not providing them.
2: Very interesting. He that was from uh, audio courtesy of NBC News. He also then went on um, News Nation on the show On Balance with Leland Vittert. And uh, essentially he said the same thing. We are no closer after this hearing from in terms of getting any answers three obvious explanations for the videos we see one uh it's american technology that's top secret two it's russian or chinese
12: technology three it's people from outer space who've got way better technology uh, than we do there's only one way to sleep well at night which is that it's u.s
14: technology should after today's hearing the american people sleep well
13: no, I think if there 's something out there that was going to do something, it would have happened a long time ago i don 't think it 's Chinese or the Russians. I mean, honestly if it was Russia, Putin would have landed one on the White House lawn and gotten out bare chested and wrestled the president <laughs> on a unicorn or something I, you know in China i mean china they're, they're, you know they would overtake us all, and if we had it we would we would knock everything out down out, of the, out of the air. so that really leaves only one of two options it 's either um, Something that we've recovered and we're reverse engineering or it is actually something coming from out of this world.
2: Now, that was interesting what he said there, something that we've recovered. I don't know if you read through the lines of what John Katsimatidis was saying this morning when we were hosting the Bernie and Sid show. But essentially, John alluded to the fact that after the Roswell crash, there was this massive technological innovation, this basically a new computer and technological revolution. And he didn't say it, but the implication was that he thought that this was due in part from reverse engineered technology from the Roswell crash. Tim Burkett, Congressman Burkett, was not entirely dissimilar to that. The question is why
14: why aren't they getting any answers? Why is there this stonewalling?
13: Because, well, it, well, the it, it, federal government has a history of that. And the people that are there on the committee and, and the people testifying are patriotic Americans. But it's but within their limited purview or scope of information that they have, when they asked when one of the Republicans, who's a former Marine officer, asked about a specific incident, he said, we, ha- we don't have any data on that. Now, what does that mean? Why can't he just push Google? Everybody... Everybody that's sitting behind the cameras knew exactly what he was talking about. That's a, that's a well-documented dec- incident. And, um, and for them to say that means, one, are they a liar? I don't think so. I think he's just limited within his scope of, of what they have. And what they're going to do is they're going to bring in somebody that is an astrophysicist or somebody with incredible credentials that's going to head up this organization, but they have no, no information on UFOs or UF- UAPs in the past. And so and, and but they'll they'll discover it within their own little thing and they'll say this is something we don't know what it is. And 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 this is just kicking the can down the road, which the Pentagon does a very good job of. I'm guilty of it as the American public is. We want our pizzas in 30 minutes or less. And that's about our gum attention span. And they're hoping this will move on to something else. But the people that are out there concerned about it that have contacted me from all over, literally all over the world and specifically in this country, though, Uh, are very interested, and the only reason we're discussing this, me and you today, is because of the the Tic Tac videos, the leaked videos Uh of the cameras, the wing cameras, the Navy pilots had, and that is the only reason this is out in the public purview right now.
2: Give me your take on uh, yesterday's hearings, 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Susan in Brooklyn, uh, actually, well, yeah, we'll go to Susan, even though she called in on another topic. Hello, Susan.
15: Susan?
2: All right, let's go to Diana in Manhattan. Hello, Diana.
10: Hi, how are you? Love your show, as always. Thank you. Well, two things. First of all, they said, you know, UAPs are pose a threat to national security. Now, how in God's name can our pathetic, crappy little planet... Defend itself against beings who are millennia ahead of us in technology. That that's ridiculous. That is pathetic. That's insane. Second thing, Roswell, as we all know, happened in '47. Transistors were introduced in '48. Ooh. What was introduced in '48? Transistors. Transistors, Uh Transistor. As in transistor radio. Right. I'm
2: familiar with that. Yeah. (laughs)
10: Yes, I thought you would be. Anyway, I just thought I'd like to say that.
2: Well, no, it uh, makes sense to me, Diana. Look, thank you. I don't know if these objects that are being captured on these videos are extraterrestrial in nature and are from civilizations that are thousands of years in the future. Um, That's the point. We don't know what they are. So let's find out. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. We'll talk with Steve Greenstreet, who is a UFO skeptic, uh, coming up in about five minutes as part of the Midnight Files. Meantime, Stephen in Brooklyn is holding. Hello, Stephen.
16: Yeah, greetings, young sir. Trust you, your family, and staff are well. Thanks. Ba- back in the fifties and sixties, when we they had all those movie theaters, you would they. Put up like a commercial on the scene in between the films or before and after it or several times, and it would like, and it ended up they, after they did an investigation, it made you hypnotize you into going into buying corn and garbage and other crapping candy to eat.
2: Stephen, when um, you spoke to Philippe, did he ask you to turn your radio off?
16: Um, no, i did well, not even aware my radio was on.
2: You're not aware that your radio is on. You don't hear it in the background right now.
16: Not, not at all. Let me just get up and walk and leave away from the room. How could you not hear it, sir?
2: Yes, that's much better. Yes. All right. So, are there any of those um, commercial hypnotic techniques that we can use on this radio show, for instance, to get people to patronize our sponsors or to just listen longer?
16: I would I would pray Mr. Casta was smarter than that. what I'm saying that might be what all the computer companies are using
2: interesting, thank you, Stephen Tom in the Bronx. Hello,
16: yeah,
8: hi Frank. I'd like to say that the if that old video that was made on t v eleven when t v eleven was owned by the Daily News. Showed that a lot of these objects were mirages. In other words, and it, it was a very telling little video they had there. In other words, I guess maybe the film uh, disintegrated by now. But uh, but it, it's when they brought this uh, program on, they showed you what looked like. Uh, unidentified flying objects look like UFOs. Interesting. And <clears throat> and, and uh, it sh- it, you swore, as a kid, I swore that these were uh, un- unidentified flying objects. I, I thought that's what they were aliens, they were going to show us snow. And then they showed you it was mirages because the airplane that went up, that's when people were able to smoke on airplanes and everything. Yeah. And uh, the airplane took the plane took off, and somebody had a, a uh, video camera <clears throat> out the window, and you saw this big cigar-shaped object out there just sitting there. And all of a sudden, as the plane made it uh, left turn or right turn, object would turn around, start coming at the airplane, people thought that they
17: were
8: going to get smashed, the plane was going to go down, and all of a sudden these objects would disappear. But that, that's a very telling uh, point to bring out. In other words, I think the TV-11, I mean, changed hands since then, you know. But I think that uh, if they could Mine had old video of it, uh, film footage, that that you'd see a lot of these objects that uh, people are describing today, the same.
2: Well, that's interesting, uh, Tom. That's certainly an interesting theory. One other interesting theory that I heard, uh, I don't know if you were listening at the time, but a a listener uh, called in and said that they thought that you were actually – the character of Floyd Lawson from The Andy Griffith Show. Um, now, if people aren't familiar with Floyd Lawson, who was played by Howard McNair, this is what uh, Floyd Lawson sounded like on The Andy Griffith Show.
0: Oh, oh they never recover from those things. Agnes Drumhill, didn't. You remember Agnes? No. Talk of the town back in 49? <laughs> She was going to marry Horace Frizzy, but then he left her at the altar, uh, just like your cousin. Well, Floyd, oh, she was sad. It was real sad. She took to drink. Her brother found her under the kitchen sink one morning, nipped at the elderberry wine. Her eyes were all puffy and red, and she was singing.
8: And it was terrible, terrible. <laughs> Tom,
2: what do we think? Are you, in fact, Floyd the Barber from The Andy Griffith Show?
8: <laughs> it's quite possible, I... And uh, he had similar thoughts to what I've got here. It's probable.
2: See that, Tom? Uh, see, we're uh, exposing all the conspiracies. Take,
8: I'm not a barber. That's the thing, you know. Well, I mean, it's a but, character that you were anyway, playing. Anyway, if they ever found that film footage, it would throw... It would. Put some stuff in perspective. That's what I'm saying,
2: Tom. I admire that nothing will distract you. For you, you call in with a point. You stick with that point no matter what. That's what I love about you, Sherman. Yes, Sherman in Manhattan.
4: Hello, hello, Frank. I, you know, I, I I have to call in and say I'm just I'm, I'm astonished at how arrogant uh, people can be. You know, we're living on a planet, right? There are thousands of other planets, maybe millions of other planets. Just that alone should keep the mind open to very likely <laughs> that there's some other life out there. Now, you have Navy pilots, they're not, they're telling us seeing these things fly in broad daylight, not like it was the middle of the night, not in the middle of the, it was at nighttime also, but broad daylight, early in the afternoon, sunny day, no clouds in the sky. And these professional military men on ships and women telling us that they've seen these things. They were out there right. flying around for long periods of time. So what else do we need to convince us? You know, it's it just – and the Roswell situation is very plausible. Right after that uh, incident, uh, you know, the technology seems to advance overnight. Right. Well, you heard the Diana body-
2: mention the uh, possibility of, um, you know, transistor radios coming out the year after exactly. the Roswell crash. Right. That's so right. it, I, think, I think it is very interesting.
4: And let me just say this one quick thing. You know, you know, besides Navy pilots, people from all over the world, you know, people that are very respected. I just was watching something on YouTube really quick about these Japanese pilots that were flying a, a, an airplane. And they said a UFO came right next to the plane. They, 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 one of the pilots said he couldn't sleep for three nights. He was, he was speechless at what he was looking at. Really? And it took him a while to come forward, but he retired. Uh, you can check it out on YouTube. He retired as, an, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a, a pilot, and now and then he came forward. He said this thing looked like it was like an acorn. He said it was shaped like an acorn. He said the lights that were coming off it were blinding him. He said the the, the technology uh, f- from this thing was something that not at all a human being can make.
2: Sherman, thank you very much. Um, you're not going to want to listen to the next segment that we do with Stephen Greenstreet who is a uh, UFO debunker, a columnist, for the, a reporter, writer for the New York Post, does these videos for the New York Post website. But um, what I don't understand, again, and maybe I'm missing something, but I don't understand how he could be the direct, former director of ATIP and be such a skeptic. But that's going to be the first question that I ask him. So we'll find out. One more call here before we get to Stephen Greenstreet. Bill in South Plainfield. Hello, Bill.
0: Hi, um, it's our stuff. Um, that's what we saw on the Navy films was the deployment of the Star Wars um, anti-missile system. And that's our hypersonic technology. And two years ago when that happened, you had the Chinese and the Russians going on about their, their hypersonic programs because they realized they had already deployed ours. Are you certain? No. Huh. That's, that's speculation based on my experience. The lead time for technology in, in the military is 30 to forty years. Uh, I saw stuff back in the 70s that wasn't deployed until the 2000s
2: what were you in the military bill?
0: Oh yeah years ago well,
2: well hey, thanks for your service I have to run I don't mean to cut the conversation short but we have Stephen Greenstreet waiting in the rings uh, very quickly there's a local angle to this as well um, uh, there's a New Jersey bill that could put Garden State students to work studying. UFOs or UAPs. A measure proposed for introduction in the State Assembly this week, NJA 4060, would create a $250,000 scholarship program for graduate students and postdoctoral researchers studying unexplained. Aerial phenomenon and extraterrestrial technological signatures. So the bill's text is not yet available, so we don't know the details, but uh, there doesn't appear to be a counterpart in the Senate. But who knows? We'll see where it goes. Stephen Greenstreet joins me next, straight ahead.
1: It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. The Other Side of Midnight presents The Midnight Files.
10: Night in the desert, shooting stars across the sky. This magical journey will take us on a ride filled with the longing,
7: searching
5: for the truth. Will we make it till tomorrow?
10: Will the sun shine on you?
8: Ooh,
2: you. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Marano. Well, yesterday was indeed an historic day in the United States and in Washington, D.C. For the first time in more than half a century, Congress actually went so far as to hold public hearings exploring UAPs or UFOs and having senior Pentagon officials address the questions of members of Congress. Somebody that's been all over this issue for a long time is Stephen Greenstreet. He's an investigative filmmaker, a video producer. He's host of something called The Basement Office, which we'll talk about, and the former director of ATIP. Very, very honored uh, today of all days to have Stephen Greenstreet on the radio with us. Stephen, thanks so much for joining me on the radio.
10: Uh, Thank you for having me.
2: So, Stephen, I think people have probably heard the term ATIP, probably when that front page New York Times magazine, uh, New York Times story was uh, exploring the funding of entities like ATIP. Can you explain to folks who may not be familiar with ATIP and who may not have heard that term, what exactly was ATIP and what was your role there?
10: Sure. So, ATIP, so the New York Times actually got it wrong. Uh, And not many people know this, but. ATIP was not the name of the official Pentagon program that people call the UFO program. The actual name of the program was all SAP and all SAP was a $22 million program, a contract awarded to Robert Bigelow who then went and investigated paranormal stuff at so-called Skinwalker Ranch in Utah. Um, they, The directors and the program managers talk about werewolves and ghosts and goblins and a whole cornucopia of paranormal spooky stuff. Now, this was not purposely not reported in The New York Times. Uh, The the unclassified nickname of OSAP was ATIP. It was the unclassified nickname and the times only reported about ufos they left out all the other spooky stuff because leslie kane who was uh, and ralph blumenthal who co-authored the new york times article are you know two you would call ufo advocates ufo activists and they wanted to legitimize the ufo topic so they purposely left some things out and that was the first domino to fall uh which for four and a half years, culminated today or yesterday uh, with uh, Congress being pulled into it to uh, answer to the people about what the heck these things in the skies are.
2: So uh, a lot of folks have seen uh, Lou Elizondo on 60 Minutes and or, or on Tucker Carlson's show or elsewhere, and they've associated him with tip. Was Lou Elizondo actually involved in tip, And what was his role if he was?
10: There's no evidence that Lou Elizondo was the director of a program called ATIP at all. Mm. Uh, the initial story was that he was um a director of ATIP and that he was uh, you know, had a management position, you know, of this Pentagon UFO program. And as it turns out, uh it was more of a hobby. And, you know, I just recently did a big report for the New York Post. It's a 43 minute documentary. I showed documents in there He concedes. It was an activity. It was a copy of his. It was a it wasn't an official program at all. He uh, you know, he says he wasn't part of the official program, which was OSAP, which was that werewolf thing out in Utah. Um, And he's just appropriated the story for himself. Um, It's my impression that he's a, a, a disingenuous person. Um, who who is claiming things that he can't back up or prove. Wow. Uh,
2: so, to be clear, though, you worked for the government, though, in your role with ATIP investigating all this paranormal stuff.
10: I... I- no, I'm a uh, I'm a investigative journalist with the New York Post.
2: Uh, so you you were never then the former director of ATIP? Uh, just so I also,
10: no, I was not the director of ATIP, But I there is as much evidence that I was the director of ATIP as there is that Lou was I I see. The I, see. I think that was
2: just some Twitter irony or Twitter humor that was lost on me and maybe lost on some members of the audience. And I appreciate uh, I appreciate the no. clarification. Uh, now, no problem. Um, Give me your impressions on what happened on uh, Capitol Hill yesterday. What did you think of these hearings?
10: It's exciting. I mean, to a certain degree, it's really exciting, right? Because, you know, this hasn't happened for, for decades where on Capitol Hill they're talking about UFOs and they're looking at photos and they're looking at videos. That was, that, that was exciting stuff. And look, there's a real issue here. There is a real issue here. We have an airspace awareness problem, an airspace safety problem. We probably have foreign actors flying over American critical infrastructure, uh, over military spaces. These things are happening, and it's good – uh, that this is that this is being talked about. You know, there are near misses, near misses. Commercial airliners packed with people having near misses with unidentified aerial systems, whether they be drones, balloons. Who knows? There's a big problem, uh, and it's been. I think the American government, and American military, for the most part, has been asleep at the wheel, and they're playing catch up. So it was good. There were no aliens today. There was more of the same blurry. You know, blurry little images that you can't even understand, like, what they're looking at. There was no smoking gun. Uh, There are a handful of congressional leaders who are admittedly sci-fi fans. And so these guys are kind of taking the reins and perhaps embellishing it a little bit more than it should.
2: So, in terms of the significance of today's hearings, it sounds like uh, maybe it, the real significance was kind of destigmatizing this and showing that Congress is willing to take this seriously more so that than anything that came out of the hearing itself.
10: Yeah, you know that's that's important because you know there is a stigma within the military that was preventing pilots from reporting. You know, near misses with mm. objects and things like that. And it, it it did become a very documented safety issue. And so destigmatizing that is a very positive thing. But again, I want to emphasize that the main reason those hearings on UFOs happened was a domino effect that started with this 22 million dollar off program that investigated everything under the sun goblins ghosts everything and then a a inaccurate story in the new york times that was copied and pasted around the world thousands of times and has just steamrolled and snowballed into this kind of mass circus this hysteria and it's the main reason those hearings happen was because
2: of that. Well, I, I want to uh, ask a little bit more about the werewolf aspect of things, because that's something that hasn't gotten sure. the kind of attention uh, that the UFOs have. But um, the number that the Pentagon officials came out with at this hearing was not the 144 uh, documented sightings by the military that they can't explain. It was a number around 400. Now, that was a much uh, larger number than the one that's been reported. Since this director of national intelligence report last year, were you surprised that that number of no. unexplained sightings you weren't?
10: No, I, w- no, I was not. I mean, let's start by saying you have to understand perhaps how the military classifies unidentified. For example, currently, right now, out in the public, the, the Navy has a database, it's open to the public, and they have a folder called UFO. And you could it's the, these are uh, public domain documents. You click in the UFO and you see pictures, uh, FLIR, you know, night vision pictures taken by the Navy of literally a quadcopter. drone. I mean, it's crystal clear quadcopter drone. But underneath, they classify it as unidentified. And the reason why they classify it as unidentified is because not because they don't know what it is. They just don't know where it came from or who mm. owns it. So the military could know what it is, but not where it came from. And it's still technically a UFO or technically a UAP. And so, no, I'm not surprised that there are hundreds. In fact, that's a low number to me. There is clutter. We have airborne clutter. You read the Navy hazard reports of what pilots are almost running into, uh, according to them, almost daily off the East Coast coast. And you're not reading about saucers and tic-tacs. You're reading about balloon-type objects and drone-type objects and fixed-wing-type objects and uh, tons of them. So, so, yeah, that the number 400 doesn't surprise
11: me.
2: One of the explanations uh, that uh, the Pentagon officials had yesterday was something that you sort of just alluded to, uh, sort of debris that was over airspace and better ways of detecting this debris and uh, the prevalence of drones. Uh, Do you find that those explanations, uh, and they also mentioned that they're now encouraging members of the military, including naval pilots, to report these things more which might not have been encouraged years ago did you find that explanation satisfactory of drones debris and better reporting techniques
4: oh oh yes
10: yes i mean that is what's needed here look the last four and a half years has been a free for all when it comes to this topic i mean fact-free hysteria about this topic it's fun i mean let's all admit it Those are fun. It's fun to think about and stuff. But there's a real issue here. And I'm glad, you know, some adults are in the room to kind of say, like, look, the reporting needs to be better. It needs to be more streamlined. We need to be more specific. And we need to address what's really going on. Because, look, I'll say it again. There is a solid chance and, and evidence shows that foreign adversaries are flying near above our critical infrastructure and our military sites here in America.
2: Do you have a theory as to what foreign adversary that is specifically? Are we talking China, Russia, something else?
10: Uh, well, I'll give a specific case that made news. In uh, 2019, uh, Navy vessels had uh, multiple nights of unknown objects swarming their ships. And from my investigation into that, it, I wouldn't put it past China. And this is 70 miles off the coast of California. I wouldn't put it past China. China's been um, pushing further and further across the Pacific. They've been harassing our navy for years uh, now, and I think it's completely possible. One thing that might blow your mind is China's involvement and relationship with the Mexican cartels. Hmm. They are China is the number one importer of fentanyl, which is the number one like drug coming out of Mexico, and China feeds that in you know into Mexico and then they feed it into the United States and lo-, lo and behold what do we have happening down at the border sightings of strange really high you know high tech drones you know down there by the Mexican border and so a whole bunch of stuff that I don't think people are aware of, that I think, and then I'm glad congress is kind of bringing it up because this stuff needs to be talked about
8: it's
2: starting to sound like maybe aliens are not routinely visiting us in your view steve
10: <laughs> I, I don't believe are routinely visiting us if aliens were routinely visiting us that we wouldn't have to have a hearing on on capitol hill to like you know discuss it or get to the bottom of it it would you know in my opinion would be obvious what was going on and there's no no evidence there's no evidence none of the videos that the military has released shows anything extraordinary whatsoever there is nothing crazy in any of these videos. It's the stories, man. It's the stories behind it that sell it. And that's all we have right now. Stories.
2: Yeah. So you are a renowned uh, UFO investigator. You've uh, debunked a lot of the footage that uh, people have claimed was a uh, a smoking gun, including the these pyramid shaped objects, these green glowing right. pyramids. What did the Pentagon officials have to say about that yesterday?
10: Well, it was cool. Like you know, a, a year plus ago, when you know everyone was discussing it. Some really keen eyed people recognized that the, the triangle shape was actually bokeh, which is actually an out of focus object. Mm. And the out of focus object, it, it turned into the shape of the camera's iris. Some camera irises are round, some of them are triangular. So in this case, the camera iris was triangular. You're not looking at a triangle object. And it was cool today, you know, yesterday that uh, we had, you know, members point that out. And they talked about the focus in the camera iris and mm. the triangular iris, and it was it was kind of cool to to kind of hear that validation officially from Capitol Hill.
2: Uh, no, I can imagine uh, that must have been very rewarding. Now, you've been very critical of the media uh, firestorm that that New York Times article uh, created. I did see on Twitter yesterday that you were. Uh, walking around and reading from a book called UFOs and Nukes. Uh, What is that book, (laughs) if people aren't familiar with
10: it? yeah. So that was a little bit of a joke. So, you know, the UFO believers were up at arms and upset that Congress did not address or, or didn't seem to be educated on claims that UFOs have supposedly turned our nuclear weapons off in the past. This is a big folklore story that comes out of it. Right, I've heard that, yeah. Yeah, so you know, this book that I was holding, UFOs and Nukes, it's basically a a UFO believer who also believes he's an alien abductee, wrote this book about how aliens have been turning our nukes off throughout history, although they haven't done it any time recently, which is strange. Yeah, now's when we
2: could use them,
10: right? (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's like it's been a it's been a hot second, supposedly, since these aliens have turned off our nukes. But it is based on something real. A lot of these stories are start with something real. In 1967, 10 nuclear weapons did go offline at Malmstrom Air Force Base in Montana. That's true. That happened. It happened to be some kind of electrical fail, signal failure, which was fixed by Boeing within a few weeks. And this is all documented. But out of there came, like, all these crazy stories that, like, saucers showed up and they were, like, shining beams on the nukes. And this is, you know, a story snowballs. You you follow the story over the years and it just gets crazier and crazier. Uh, So, anyway, that's uh, UFOs and nukes in a nutshell.
2: And did you really go door to door yesterday? No
10: i should have no i was just joking that you know there was there's this um that was me and i probably should have done hashtag sarcasm but that was just me there is this like um religious aspect oh no question to, to ufos and there's this pro where people feel like they have to get the message out and go you know figuratively or or literally knock on doors and I think a lot of UFO believers were very upset by the hearing because they weren't hearing the stories they were so used to be mm. validated, and that upset them. And so my 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 thing on Twitter yesterday was just kind of like a wink and a nod sure. at the whole missionary aspect of things.
2: Uh, it sounds like overall you found the performance from these Pentagon officials pretty impressive.
10: I think they. They did the best they could with what they had. I mean, mm-hmm. you you saw that. I mean, they were they were literally looking at blurry dots on a screen. I think with with what they have, they're they're doing the best they can. You know, they've been mandated to do this, and so they obviously they have to do it. Um, and, but I think it was spoken today, like we need better data. We need better right. stuff to work here, guys. I think you know you heard that we need. M- better stuff to look at and analyze here, and that it just isn't there yet. But that's not to say who knows what's being said behind closed doors during the classified section. Of the hearing, you know, maybe that's where the
11: goods are.
2: (laughs) Let's hope so. If people just tune in, we'll talk with Stephen Greenstreet. He's a video producer, a UFO investigator, host of The Basement Office, and a contributor for the New York Post, and a a frequently cited debunker of uh, various UFO conspiracy theories. What is The Basement Office, Stephen?
10: The Basement Office is a a video series uh, starring myself and and ufologist Nick Pope. And we've done our third season, it's for the New York Post. I started the show as a believer. Complete, you know, I was into it. I was a believer. I believed Lou Elizondo. I believed the New York Times article and all that stuff. And it wasn't until about a year ago when I started to go, wait, what if I'm wrong? And I started digging, and you know, I dug up documents and, and, and anecdotal evidence, and, and I realized this whole thing was just a crazy story that spiraled out of control. And have, you know, and the media keeps, keeps repeating it because you know you probably know this. A lot of media today is fast and quick, and so they, they just a big story comes out, other media outlets just copy and paste that, and then they put out their own version of it. They're not doing their own digging. It's just copy paste, copy paste, copy paste. So if a, when the New York Times article came out, it got copied and pasted. It's the paper of record. So no one doubted it. So everyone copied and pasted it by the hundreds. And then it was just like you couldn't stop it at that point.
2: Oh, no, no doubt about it. So do you think the UFO moment that we're experiencing now, which led to these hearings yesterday, the sort of media hysteria that we've seen over the last five years, do you think that's a result of people just um, wanting to believe, to borrow a phrase from the X-Files, or is it result is it a re- result of intentional deception and, I don't know, hucksterism?
10: Yeah, a little of both, uh, a little of both. Look, some of these folks I do believe believe it, meaning they're true believers. They're not complete con artists or anything. They believe that something's there, and there is something there, which I've you know previously have discussed. But there's no doubt that they are. The main actors here aren't being truthful. In fact, they admit it. You know, Chris Mellon told you know Military dot com, I am purposely withholding information about the real program off from congressional leaders because i don't want them to know or think that we're crazy so i'm purposely withholding information so there's a whole bunch of kind of disingenuous stuff that's mm. happening and has happened and uh you know i just want people to know about the werewolf <laughs> First well, uh, so let's talk we- about
2: let's talk about the werewolves. So um, yeah. did the government really fund uh, in part or, or or in large part a program that part of its domain was investigating werewolf
10: sightings? So that was incidental. So here's what happened. And, you know, I made this documentary. This just dropped last week about it. Um, James Lekatsky, who was the real director, and I have the documents with his name on it, the real director of the real Pentagon program, James Lekatsky, went to Senator Reid and said, I believe in UFOs, and I also believe in other paranormal stuff. Give me money so I can investigate. Harry Reid, being a believer, said, great, but how the hell – to convince Congress to give us $22 million for this. And Lukatsky said, don't worry. I'll write a program that doesn't mention UFOs and it doesn't mention werewolves and it doesn't mention paranormal stuff. I'll just use generic scientific language. He did that. It was signed off on. They got the money. And they went to Skinwalker Ranch in Utah where they, you know, it's on record. You can look at it. They, they, There they, they were werewolves, they, uh, poltergeist hauntings, multiple poltergeist hauntings. Goblin owls, like these giant goblin owls that were attacking them, all this spooky stuff, UFOs, literal flying saucers. I mean, you name it, and this this is where the money was spent. This is what the program was. The Pentagon had no idea. It wasn't until the Pentagon started getting reports in where they went, whoa, 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 wait, what? (laughs) What are you guys doing? And they shut the program down. When they found out what was going on, they shut it down. That's the story,
2: you know, so how many werewolves did they find
10: <laughs> werewolves so in the in the tell all book that Lakatsky wrote with another project manager, they mention I believe three different werewolves. There's one werewolf that was hunt that's stalking one particular officer hmm. and uh yeah and and they they talk about these hitchhikers they claim. These people claim that when you are when you interact with the paranormal, it attach attaches itself to you and follows you wherever you go. So you leave Utah, go back home to Virginia. Now your family in Virginia is haunted. Now you're seeing werewolves outside your kitchen window. Now X, Y, and Z. This is what they claim. Wow yeah it's wild man it's so wild, and no one the story no one knows about it like hardly anyone no, knows about I, it I, because the, yeah know. i'm glad,
2: glad- if people wanted to see more about this they can uh, they could see your work at the basement office you could search stephen green street on youtube or yeah. the basement office on it's
10: youtube, YouTube you, you, YouTube.com backslash n y post
2: what is yeah. your uh take on uh, Congressman Tim Burkett, the, uh, pe- the Tennessee Republican that has made this sort of his cause celeb.
10: Yeah, God love him, right? I mean, he's passionate about it. He uh, he believes, and this is a direct quote from him, he believes that UFOs are in the Bible. Yeah, um, he said you know, that they're...
2: recently on our radio station, actually.
10: Yeah, he talks about yeah. Ezekiel's wheel and he says, well, you know, UFOs are in the Bible, so obviously they exist. So obviously they're real. you know. Um, I'm not sure that kind of scientific analysis would fly at the end of the day. But, you know, he's passionate about what he believes. And look, this is cyclical. When you go back to Project Blue Book and you go back to the 60s, right, the same thing happened. You had your sympathetic, believed it all and pushed for stuff. And then at the end of the day you had like the Condon report and it was all shut down for decades. And mm. now we're just going through the same motions again. <laughs>
2: uh, did you by the way, did the research from Lakatsky and others ever determine if a silver bullet is the best way to stop a werewolf, or is it something else? Is that just a popular misconception?
10: So that was the silver bullet was not discovered, though they do not Lekatsky, but previous owners of Skinwalker talk about shooting multiple bullets into a werewolf and it being it's standing there unharmed and unaffected wow so bulletproof more bulletproof werewolf
2: <laughs> i mean come on <laughs> what is the world coming to if even a silver bullet won't stop a werewolf hey, stephen Greenstreet, uh you could check out his work at the new york post uh just search the basement office you could check out some great videos on youtube as well thanks so much for the time this morning i know you're very much in demand this week i appreciate you making some time with us
10: of course, this was fun.
2: Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
1: It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. 77 WABC.
2: Now that's good. That's good. Uh, that place you really wanted to play the, uh, "Midnight
6: in the Desert" again, the second time. I guess you did. I did. I did. I wanted to play this, but the werewolves. There you have it. That's what happened. Exactly. Uh, hey, if you want
2: to join the Facebook group, just search "Morano Radio Fans and Haters." That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio fans and haters, a lot of comments on um, various things that we're talking about on the show. And if you want to participate on a, in, on any of those subjects, uh, do that. Mary writes, mugs, bobbleheads, lapel pins. When do you cross the line from collector to hoarder? I think I've crossed that line. I ordered some more lapel pins yesterday that just arrived. I got one that I can't wait to try. A cool microphone lapel pin. And I'm looking forward to wearing, I don't know, maybe Tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow. All right, until next hour, keep asking questions.
1: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano.
2: Everyone, This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Thanks for listening. Uh, we're keeping an eye on uh, any news out of these elections. As it stands now, uh, with about 96% of the vote in in Pennsylvania, the Republican primary for U.S. Senate there is still too close to call. Uh, the Democratic primary was a blowout. John Fetterman won overwhelmingly. And in the uh, governor's race, Doug Mastriano won the Republican primary and the attorney general Josh Shapiro won in the Democratic primary. Those two will face off in the general election. But as uh, as it stands now, the race that c- could very well determine control of the U.S. Senate is still too close to call, at least the primary aspect of it. Uh, right now, Dr. Oz ahead, even oh, about a million votes cast in this election. And Dr. Oz is currently leading David McCormick by about 2,000 votes. So I don't know that we'll get anything more solid in the way of results by the time I leave the air at 5. But you're going to want to stay tuned to WABC the whole day because from uh, Deb Valentine in the early news at 5 all the way until I come back at 1 a.m. tomorrow. All the hosts are going to bring you all sorts of updates on that. Hey, uh, speaking of things going on at our radio station, and those of you that are holding, I'll get to you in a minute, but I am very pleased to tell you that on, what day is today? Wednesday, okay, that on Monday we got the, latest ratings, and uh, I'm not sure what uh, what I'm allowed to share, but I feel very comfortable telling you that in the 12-plus category, meaning every listener over the age of 12, we were once again number one. Number one, nobody even close. The uh, only st- the station that finished second, WFAN, and it was a distant second. And uh, the station that finished third, 10 10 wins. So uh, from 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. for the month of April in New York City, this is the most listened to anything on the radio from 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. Thank you for making that possible. And that finishes a very strong quarter for us. We were blessed, we did very well in February, March, and April, and we're number one for the quarter as well. So uh, we're, we're we're killing it. And uh, I only mention that so that you know you're not alone in in, uh, in listening. So thank you very much for listening. It means a great deal to me. And I, I'm really hopeful that uh, this show continues to grow and continues to stay number one forever because, as Walt Sabo alluded to in his column in Talkers Mag- Talkers.com this month, um I'm really hoping that other stations will see the kind of success that we've had here on WABC and that you can do a live and local talk show and be number 1 and I'm hoping they'll launch their own overnight shows in different stations around the country in different markets around the country I'm not looking for any increased competition because We have um, a lot of listeners from around the country, including from a lot of markets like Boston, for instance, where they used to have quality live and local talk programming on the overnights, and now they no longer do. So I'm very glad uh, that um, we're happy to have those listeners. But from a radio listener's point of view, I want overnight radio everywhere. You know, I really do. Hey, uh, one issue, if you le- heard me on the Bernie and Sid show yesterday morning, one issue that I raised with the uh, judge, Richard Weinberg, I had a very good time with the judge, uh, Richard Weinberg, I got to tell you, I- I've known Judge Weinberg for years, but um I'm trying to think, this might have been the longest amount of time I've ever spent just with him, and we had a good time, both on the air and off, and I felt like I got to know him a little bit better. And uh, he, I, I certainly, again, I've known him for years and worked with him for years, but uh, it was nice to be able to work closely with him for a few hours and spend some time off air together. But one of the issues that we spoke about was this legislation that Governor of uh, Florida Ron DeSantis signed on Monday that makes it illegal to protest outside of private homes in Florida. Now, this all came about. As a reaction to what's happening with the Supreme Court justices in Maryland and in Virginia, since the Alito, the draft of the Alito ruling has come out, you now see protesters, mostly pro-choice protesters, protesting out front in, in the justices' homes. Now, I have said this a thousand times. I don't care what your cause is or what you believe in or whatever. And I don't care if it's somebody that I like or don't like. I don't think it's appropriate to protest out some outside someone's home at all. I, I don't. I, I said this when they were protesting out front in, of Bill de Blasio's house. I said this when they were protesting out front in front of uh, Dermot Shea's house, other people's homes as well. I find it reprehensible. I find it very Bush League. I find it very low rent. And I find that um, that's the case with these Supreme Court protests and in fact, in the case of the law in both Virginia and Maryland, it's evidently against the law to protest in front of a judge's home with the with the intention of getting them to change their mind about, or or, or I forget what the wording is, but with the attempt of getting them to, uh, with the attempt of influencing their decision. So I get why people are upset. However, as... Judge Weinberg and I were discussing yesterday, I do have some First Amendment concerns about this. While I would never protest in front of someone's home, is it really wise when the First Amendment gives you that right to petition your government and gives you the right to freedom of speech and freedom of assembly, is it really wise to throw up these restrictions? So this was a discussion that um, Alan Dershowitz had with John Katsimatidis and Judge Weinberg, and I think Ed Cox was there as well, and Craig Eaton. So you have four lawyers, Dershowitz, Weinberg, Eaton, and Cox, four lawyers, all in one conversation about this right that they've done away with in Florida to protest in front of someone's home. This is the 77 WABC clip of the day, courtesy of yes, yesterday's Cats at Night program.
14: The Supreme Court has held that you can restrict speech to time, place, and manner, so that 11 o'clock at night you can't go around with a loudspeaker in a neighborhood and, and exercise your free speech, say you want to vote for a particular candidate, even though the speech itself is protected, the time, place, and manner are not. And so case came to the Supreme Court involving some horrible people who tried to interfere with the funeral of a brave American soldier who was killed in combat. And the Supreme Court said no. Uh, the Supreme Court said that you can't prevent that as long as they're away and across the street. So I think a Florida law, unless it's limited, you can say you can't pick it in front of a juror's house, uh, maybe an elected judge's house, a witness's house. But a Supreme Court justice is different. They have lifetime tenure, um, and they're supposed to be immune from that kind of pressure. Now, it doesn't mean you can come up to his door or shout, but if you have a dignified protest across the street from the house or in the street in front of his house, say 20 or 30 feet away, I think the Supreme Court would say that that would be uh, protected speech mm-hmm. under the Constitution and that the Florida law would be unconstitutional if it were interpreted to apply to those kinds of protests now the one rule that has to be clear is that whatever the rules and restrictions are have to be neutral they have to be the same rules for pro-abortion and anti-abortion the same rules uh... for black for white protesters they can't be different rules for different groups
2: such a smart guy that alan dershowitz you can understand why he was a law professor at harvard for fifty years and probably the most quoted uh... law professor in america I, for the reasons that he cited, I do think that um, this law might be unconstitutional. And I wonder, is it even wise? Again, I, I can't say enough how much I despise the idea of protesting in front of anyone's home, especially a public official, but really anyone. I've had protesters in front of my house, and I'll tell you what, it's quite unpleasant. You're, you're in your backyard uh, during the summer trying to enjoy a nice uh, Saturday afternoon, maybe smoke a cigar or uh, play some bocce or ladder ball or spend time with your wife. And all of a sudden you have some lunatic chanting and holding a sign in front of your home. It's really annoying. But unfortunately, I don't believe the Constitution gives you a right to not be annoyed. So I do think – while I get what DeSantis and the state legislature in Florida was trying to do, I do think that there may be some serious constitutional prohibitions against this. So the way the Florida law is structured – and if you want to comment on this, I'd love to hear your view if you think DeSantis is doing the right thing or the wrong thing here. The way this Florida law is structured is violators would be given one chance to disperse after an official warning – and would be subject to arrest and up to 60 days in jail if they don't comply. So DeSantis uh, signed this law on Monday uh, after Roberts, Alito, Kavanaugh, and Barrett all had protesters gather outside their homes. So when he signed the bill, DeSantis said, quote, Sending unruly mobs to private residences, like we've seen with the angry crowds in front of the homes of Supreme Court justices, is inappropriate. This bill will provide protection to those living in residential communities, and I am glad to sign it into law. You know, that's the other thing about protesting in front of someone's house. Um, you know, I might not like Bill de Blasio, right? But his son never did anything to me. Why do you need to disturb his son? Because you disagree with his father on – I always hate that, just having neighbors and family members and friends all be subject to having their quality of life disrupted because you have to protest at someone's house, protest at their office. So uh, that being said, I think DeSantis might have gone too far here. What do you think? Eight hundred eight four eight 848 wabc Uh, That's 800-848-9222. Do you think this new law in Florida runs afoul of the First Amendment? Or would you like to have something like that here in New York so that you can't protest in front of Bill de Blasio's house or Eric Adams' house? You know, so Bill de Blasio looks like he's running for Congress now, as I said yesterday. who's the first person you heard that from? Huh? Me. Come on. Be honest. So you can bet. There's a lot of people unhappy with de Blasio, not just Republicans either. And there's going to be people that want to protest in front of his house. I don't think they should be able to. Excuse me. I don't think they should, but I think they should be able to. I'm going to be very clear. So I think it should be legal, but I don't think it's appropriate. What do you think? I don't think we should be making laws against conduct that I find distasteful or unseemly. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. That's one eight hundred eight four 848 wabc And you could bet this Florida law will be challenged in court. And I, I think it has a very good chance of being struck down for the reasons that you heard from Alan Dershowitz and from me and from Judge Weinberg on yesterday's edition of the Bernie and Sid Show. Roger is in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Hello, Roger.
5: Yeah, thanks. Look, You're uh, welcome. I, I sent an email. I sent a, uh, an email to I was Dominic, about this uh, Wait, a week or two ago. Who did you send it to? Maybe it was Dominic, but anyway, mm-hmm. uh, did that um, residential neighborhoods within or within a earshot shot of a church, hospital, or a school? Uh, I think should be forbidden. And um, and uh, secondly, um, and and as um, Dershowitz uh, mentioned in his uh, comments, there about you know. Certain times and places, I I do think, I mean, there are a lot of, just because something, we have a right to something doesn't make it right that it be done. Um, Yeah, no, I can understand
2: that. I think to your. Yeah, well, yeah, that's a separate issue. I mean, but Dershowitz was very clear to say if it's done in a respectful manner. But yeah, I I would, like, if you want to say there can't be demonstrations in front of homes between 11 p.m. and 6 a.m., I could, I think that's a reasonable restriction. But to simply say no protests, that does seem to run afoul of constitutional
3: protections
5: well what's a, you know a, a common what's a, a a common place or or a town square maybe it's, there's, there's got to be places where things like that can be done i mean i don't know in residential neighborhoods you will be disturbing a lot of people you, know, you don't want to make noise around a hospital or 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 a church or a school i, I just i think there's got to be i think there should be restrictions because you know uh there's got to be restrictions i think you know can't mouth off inside of uh, the the, the uh, well of uh, Congress, for instance. Well, so um, um, so, instance.
2: what do you think about this specific legislation that DeSantis signed? That very simply, you can't you can't protest in front of someone's home.
5: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I would think that there, there's places uh, um, uh, like like common places. You want to protest? You want to make a big stink about something? Well, here you got the whole downtown, your commercial district. So you, you got the, maybe in front of their businesses. It's fine. Uh, Commercial places or downtown, you know, a state or municipal properties, uh, federal properties. But I think in residential neighborhoods or, like I said, within an earshot of a hospital church or schools, I think uh, if somebody wants to, you know, make themselves known about an issue, well, there are places that you can do it. And, if you know, in front of uh, the Supreme Court, if you want to make a, a stink about something that or some courthouse, but then again, you remember in in Wisconsin when they when the jury was deliberating and they were making so much noise that it could be heard inside the courthouse? Yes. Um, yeah.
2: No. And I agree. I think that's inappropriate. And I think um, it was either Dershowitz or Judge Weinberg that made that same point. Maybe you can't protest in front of a juror's home or something like that. That I, I get that. Uh, Roger, thank you. And I want to be very clear. You know, I am so against doing this. I find it just reprehensible. I'll never forget uh, a friend of mine. A uh, close friend to this day, but he, he's no longer in elective office. He was elected to either the city council or the state assembly because he served in both. I think it was the state assembly. This is going back 16 years. And he's explaining to me. I saw him on a Sunday, and he's explaining to me how the day before he had just come home late from Albany. Right. So he was uh, he was in the state assembly at the time. He had just come home late from Albany on Friday night. And was exhausted. And he had somebody knock on his door Saturday morning at 8 o'clock in the morning. And now 8 o'clock in the morning is not super late, but sometimes on a Saturday when you don't get home until 2.33 a.m., it is. So he goes down in his bathrobe, and a constituent found his address and said, hey, so-and-so, and he comes there with his dog. This is my dog, let's say, Rusty. I don't know. This is Rusty. Um, I just wanted to talk to you about XYZ issue. And he gives a whole lengthy commentary on XYZ issue. And my friend's sitting there in his bathrobe, standing there in his bathrobe, in, in the, in the, in the, in the, right near his door. And you know he just says, there's nothing, I, there's nothing really I could do for you now. Can you call my office or come to my office on Monday? And I just thought from that point on, why would you ever bother people at home? Chances are they can't help you at home. You know, Mike Bloomberg, I don't know if he still does it, but he used to have his phone number publicly listed. You could, be, you could call information or to the yellow pages and ask for Mike Bloomberg's number, and they'd give it to you. He was listed. And so people would call him, and he would pick up the phone, and then after people found out that his number was listed, they'd call all the time, and he would tell them all the same thing. You know, it's at night. I'm home. There's nothing I could really do for you. Maybe we could continue this conversation during the week. So, I don't like the idea of protesting in front of people's homes, but I really don't like the idea of making it illegal. That's my two cents. What say you? Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Howard is in Elmhurst. Hello, Howard.
8: Yes, I. I when uh, the the firecrackers were going off and the, the horns were honking in at Gracie Mansion. Wake up, the Blasio. I was I was quite pleased, and it was quite effective in in stopping the noise. Well, so, I,
2: so, so you were you were pleased because it was effective in stopping the
15: noise?
8: Yes, and I I, I forget the name of the councilman that that whose idea it was, but uh, I tried to encourage him to do it for the whole week.
2: All right. Well, I guess um, you know. I guess different strokes for different folks. So, um, yeah, it sounds like you're against this uh, Ron DeSantis bill, then. Well,
8: um, not when it comes to certain authors like the Supreme Court. Well,
2: no, no. But this doesn't apply to the Supreme Court. This says anybody, your house, the governor's house, a Supreme Court person, a random person. This says you can't pro- protest outside of someone's house. Yeah,
8: I. I, I'm against it,
2: yeah. All right. Okay. Well, so we're on the same page, I guess, on that, even if we differ on tactics in terms of uh, protesting outside people's house at uh, at night. 800-848-WABC. That's uh, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Also on Twitter at uh, Frank Morano. That's uh, Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. Pamela is in central New Jersey. Hello,
8: Pamela. Hi. Um,
18: yeah, in reference to UAPs, uh Google satellite—they can tell what you're having for dinner and a backyard barbecue. And you mean to tell me they don't know what these things are? So I think not.
2: So what do you what, what do you think they are then?
18: Oh, they're probably testing things, or or um, they're aware that they're from other nations and uh, you know military. Items and they just don't, you know, it's always blurred, it's always this, it's always that, you know. And, you know, I I went for a, a permit for a trailer for my driveway, and the zoning board took out Google Maps of your property. You know, they know everything. Mm-hmm. You know, it's creepy. It's, it's you know, and that's when I realized, oh, my God, you know, how silly thinking they don't know what this is. You know, they know exactly what this is.
2: Interesting. When, when you say knows, they who is they is they google or someone else uh, uh,
18: it's it's somewhere in in the government that they're not ready to release to the public because they're afraid that it might panic people and um it's probably you know military testing and um you know um, they've got to test this stuff somewhere they've got to send it through the airways I, I i you know the the um i, I remember one day i was talking to my neighbor in a harrier um or a stealth, rather, a stealth flew over, and it was, like, amazing. It was, like, what a sight. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it get, gets you thinking that sometimes, you know, they just got to test stuff, <laughs> and they're not going to tell us
19: yeah, everything.
18: Well, they're going to keep it blurred.
2: That's a fair point. Thank you, Pamela. Hey, we'll continue with your calls next. Six open lines if you want to jump on board, eight hundred eight four eight 848 wabc That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. This is the other side of Midnight straight ahead.
1: We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now here's Frank Marano.
10: There's a boy on a western bay, and it's. A...
6: chain made of finest silver from the north of Spain. This is
2: The Other Side of Midnight. But I'm Frank Moreno. I'll tell you, um, so I didn't realize that one of the few shows that I really do watch and enjoy, uh, my wife and I watch, it, is the show Billions of Paul Giamatti. It's quite good. The dialogue is so bizarre, and it's so unrealistic, but I just love it. And it's so quick. It's so quick. You almost feel the need to pause it. Wait, wait, what did that person just say? Because they'll reference in one sentence, they'll reference a historical fact, a radio show, a wrestler, a film, and a book all in one sentence. And it's just you, – you, I don't think there's a person alive, including, I would speculate, the creator of uh, Billions, uh, Brian Koppelman – who can get all of the references that they make on that show. But it's great. I love it. I think it's really, really well done. I like a lot of the stories, although this most recent season had some episodes that I thought were weird. So I didn't realize that my wife and I, we finally had an hour, excuse me, we had an hour last night to, to watch television together, if that's what we chose to do. <laughs> Put our son to bed, and I said, well, do you want to watch Billions? And she said, I thought we were caught up with Billions. So I don't think so. So we go back and check, and sure enough, we've watched all the episodes of Billions. I did not realize that we had finished the most recent season of Billions. So I didn't know it was over, which I guess maybe tells you that the season finale was a little lackluster. I mean, it was good, but I didn't think it was season finale worthy. So that's that. So what do we do instead? We've been watching Better Call Saul. Are you familiar with Better Call Saul? Better Call Saul is mostly a prequel- to the one of the greatest dramatic television series of all time breaking bad and it just came back a few weeks ago better call Saul and we've now watched they have four season four episodes released and we've watched the first three and i like it it's really it's a great show it's really well done but here is my issue and my wife has even more of an issue with this than i do it's it's been Two years, maybe more, maybe close to three years since the last episode of Better Call Saul. So you kind of fe- forget everything. And so they did have at the beginning of the season one of those, you know, 90 second, not even the 60 second recaps of everything you're supposed to know. But we didn't feel, and my stepmother agreed, we didn't feel that it did an adequate job catching everybody up. So as we're watching these episodes, it really almost feels as if you're still kind of lost because you're not up on what everybody is is doing. And my I have a, a very good memory, and I'm having a difficult time. And so my wife keeps pausing the show, and she keeps saying, well, why are they doing that? What's that? And normally my wife will do that if she doesn't get a plot point or something, and she thinks that I have some secret inside information about the plot – and she'll stop and says, wait, what, what do you mean? Why did they do that? I said, honey, I don't know. I'm watching this for the first time too. What? Why do you assume that I know? She said, oh, I thought I wasn't paying attention. I said, no, I don't know either. So with Better Call Saul, I do remember a little bit more of the series than she did. But I think the mistake that we made is not re-watching season five or whatever the previous season was prior to starting the season because – it, for both of us, we're still very rusty. After every episode, I always ask her, What did you think of that episode? Did you like that? And she said, Honestly, I find it so difficult to know what's going on because it's been so long since the show was on. So if you are thinking of starting the most recent season of Better Call Saul, I would hope that you listen, learn from my example, and rewatch the previous season first before you dive headfirst into this. If you're a Breaking Bad fan, and you have not seen Better Call Saul, I think you would really, really enjoy this show. In fact, um, I don't think it's better than Breaking Bad, but my wife does. Rachel, it's a little lighter at times than Breaking Bad. And so uh, she thinks it's a better series and a more enjoyable series. I'm not willing to go that far, but it is quite good. Uh, Really, really well done. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. I am a, a New York Mets fan, and the Mets split a doubleheader against the Cardinals yesterday. And the Mets are looking good this year. You know, it's, it's a fun time to be a Mets fan, even though, you know, you've seen a few injuries, a few setbacks. Okay. No big deal. It's okay. But one of the things that the new Mets owner, Steve Cohen, who ironically is based on a character from Billions of Bobby Axelrod, the character of Bobby Axelrod is based on Steve Cohen, one of the things that he said that he would be doing when he took over the New York Metropolitans, he took all sorts of suggestions from people on Twitter. And one of the suggestions that some fans had was to bring back old timers day. Now old timers day, if you're not a baseball fan is basically a day It's exactly what it sounds like. It's a day to bring back old baseball players that don't currently play, and they play sort of an exhibition game before the before the regular game. It's really fun. I would love to go to an old-timers game. I've never been to one. I'd love to go. In fact, I'd love it if we did an old-timers day here on WABC. Can you imagine that? If we did a day where we just invited former WABC talk show hosts in for the day, you have Ron Kuby here, Richard Bay, Steve Malzberg, uh Jay Diamond, Lionel right um, some really cla- classic WABC talk show host Matt Drudge we used to do a great show on here Glenn Beck right uh, you just get all these classic WABC talk show hosts doing old timers day on the radio I'm actually gonna suggest I'm gonna in fact I have a document that I keep a list of all the suggestions that I'm gonna make to management I am putting that on Old timers day on the radio got it now Anyway, so the Mets are doing this. They're bringing back Old Timers Day on August 27th. But I was talking to some Mets fans the other day because they're excited about this too. And a lot of Mets players over the years have had some scandal, including a lot of very good Mets players that would be a part of Old Timers Day. I think one of the best examples is um, Lenny Dykstra. Lenny Dykstra was a terrific player for the Mets and then later with the Phillies. I mean, Lenny has allowed himself to get out of shape a little bit, so I don't know if he would want to play in an old timers game. But since, you know, he's filed for bankruptcy, okay. Um, in 2011, he was arrested and charged with bankruptcy fraud followed by grand theft auto and drug possession on an unrelated case, as well as indecent exposure. Do So that's one. So does Lenny Dykstra, should he not be included in Old Timer's Day? And what about somebody like um, Vince Coleman, who threw a firecracker at a kid? Should that person not be included in Old Timer's Day? Uh, what about someone like uh, Brett Saberhagen that took a water gun? I think it was a Super Soaker, and put bleach into it and shot it into a room full of reporters. Should that should Brett Saberhagen be excluded from Old Timers Day? Um, one of the the best examples, I think, and someone who would definitely, nor, under normal circumstances, be invited to uh, an Old Timers Day game is Jose Reyes. Jose Reyes who was he's you know he could probably still play now. He's only 38 years old. That's exactly the kind of person that would be at an old timers game. And he had a very serious domestic violence incident was charged with domestic violence. His wife went to the hospital while they were on vacation in Hawaii. He grabbed her by the throat, shoved her into a door, before hotel security called the police. She went to the emergency room, had all sorts of injuries. So um, should Jose Reyes be welcomed back for old-timers' day? So, and I don't know the answers to any of these questions, but I feel like it's a question that's going to come up with a lot of these great Met players that would play in an old-timers' day but have had various scandals. Even Ron Darling, who is a, a big part of the Mets announcing team now. now. Back in 1986, at the, that classic New York Mets championship year, you had this brawl outside of a bar in Texas that involved Tim Tuffle and Ron Darling and Bobby Ojeda and Rick Aguilera. If I remember correctly, Tuffle and Ron Darling were both arrested, and Bobby Ojeda and uh, Rick Aguilera, they, um, you know, they were involved in this incident as well. They feuded with the police. I think two of them were arrested for fighting with police. So, does one incident get you banned from Old Timers Day? Should you have multiple incidents? How? Do, what role does character play? in in determining whether or not you get to play at Old Timer's Day. What do you think? 800-848-WABC. That's uh, 800-848-9222. I'd love to know your view of the situation. Uh, Old Timer's Day, who should be there? 800-848-WABC. If you've seen any episodes of Better Call Saul and you're calling about that, please don't give any spoilers away. Just not only for me, because I haven't seen the most recent episode, but for anybody that uh, hasn't seen any of this season yet. Please, no spoilers. We have a no-spoiler rule on this show. Chris is in New Jersey. Hello, Chris.
15: Hi, Frank. Um, When you were talking about the laws with the protests and everything, Mm -hmm. um, sometimes they make laws, but if no one's enforcing them and you don't have prosecutors prosecuting them, what's the point?
2: Right. So you, your point is, um, is what exactly?
15: Well, you have people going to Congress and Senate. They commit perjury. If perjuries a crime, nothing happens. You have them burning down. Uh, built. Well, I mean, Roger um, Stone. Ro- Roger Stone it, was okay.
2: charged with with perjury.
15: Yeah, but there's a lot of people who aren't. Right. Well, so I give mean, me like give they, me another example. Like, well, they're burning down. Businesses and everything, and a lot of the protesters in Seattle and in Portland and in Chicago and in New York, they're not being prosecuted, and and in New York, the cops are arresting them. They're letting them right out again.
2: Well, I, again, I mean, but that doesn't mean they're not. Then those cases aren't being adjudicated. So I, I'm not getting your point on this law. Are you saying the law should not have been signed, or it should have been signed? I'm not. I'm not clear.
15: Um. Even if there is a law, it doesn't necessarily mean that it, that they're going to work with it and use it.
2: Well, right, so but I mean, I guess that could be important. said. That can be said of any law.
15: Yeah, yes, it could. But another thing, <clears throat> you have your uh, your contest, right? That you have for a thousand years. Right. Um, I could never win that. All right. You'll have very simple questions, and you have hard questions. I have an idea for you. Maybe you could change it so even an imbecile could win it, or a ch- small child, right? Um, a lot of times I'll watch TV and stuff, and I'll ask, I wonder if that person is still alive. Maybe you could change the question to dead or alive.
2: That's not a bad idea, actually. Maybe we'll we do, we'll do yeah, a dead or alive day. You know, the yeah, problem with I, that, Chris... Go ahead.
15: Yeah. No, no of course... My wife and I do that all the time.
2: Yeah, no, like, that's wow, I, that's I, fun. The problem know. with that, Chris, is if unless they're with me in studio, how do I know they're not looking up whether someone's dead or alive?
15: Yeah, but knowing you, you're going to fuck some people who no one knows.
2: <laughs> mm. Well,
15: thank you, Chris. I'd
2: love to try that one day. I love those kind of contests. That's a lot of fun. Thank you, Chris. Um, I just, uh, I don't know how you make that Google proof. Um, unless they're in studio. Maybe we'll do that for an in-studio day. We'll do an in-studio edition of Dead or Alive or something of that nature. Larry is in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry.
9: Yeah, I'd like to weigh in on the old-timers' day uh, situation. Please. First of all, I've gone to a few old-timers' day. This is going to be a, a, a royal flop, okay? It's going to be a one-time experiment simply because, first of all, the, the question you pose is really a non-sequitur. Because the players of today don't have character, period. And and that goes for recent yesteryear. Unless you want to exhume Mickey Mantle, there's really not going to be... They don't remember these players because they have little character. Well, first of all,
2: again, I I know Mickey Mantle has a lot of fans, but Mickey Mantle was drunk almost all the time. I mean, is that really the kind of person of character that you want to hold up?
9: Well, that's the whole thing, you see. Uh, Yes, because you see... Character has to do with playing, um, with with playing for a team as opposed to playing for yourself. Mickey Mantle played for the team. He was a lifetime Yankee, and the fact that he was able to party and do what he did on the field made him a legend. Well, and but c- but couldn't
2: that, you say that of Daryl Strawberry or Doc Gooden or Keith Hernandez?
9: No, no, no quite the contrary. because those guys comp- those guys shortened their careers and compromise their abilities, because that was that was called drug addiction. If you would have done a drug test on Mickey Mantle, he would have been clean every game.
8: The yeah, point, I, I, hangovers again, don't
9: I, count.
2: I, right, but I, I guess, you know, in your book, you, you are ascribing some virtue to getting high off of drinking versus getting high off of cocaine. In my view, you know, whatever your recreational drug of choice, whether it's alcohol or cocaine or marijuana, Uh, To me, it's all the same. You're choosing to get you're choosing to get wasted.
9: No, uh, you're reducing this to a question of of, of substance abuse. It's not. It's a matter of ego abuse. The players today are egotistical. And so are the by the way, so are the announcers. This guy. This guy Mike K is the worst thing I ever heard. What is see ya? See ya! That's a, that's a home <laughs> run. See ya is when is when you when you when you say goodbye to your friend. Remember Bob Murphy? I don't know if you were around. when Yes, you heard, yeah. Bob I Mur- mean
2: Bob Bob Murphy only died about about six or seven years ago. Of course,
9: right now Bob Murphy when they hit a home run, you were with the ball in flight. Okay, and sometimes he would say, "Going, going, caught." Right. Okay, that's, and, and, but today, that would be a big embarrassment for an announcer. He has to say, first of all, he has to talk about the home run in the past tense. It's like, that was a long shot. Who the hell cares what's after it happens? You know, you want to hear it while it happens. All these announcers stink to high heaven. It's, it's, you know, and that's just an example. They have to make the players likable. That's the whole point. There's no connection between the fans and the players well, anymore. Okay,
2: well, so let's look at some of the, the Mets that they're talking about bringing back for Old Timers Day and, um, and tell me where you think they're, you know, they're falling short. Um, and again, who knows what the final lineup are going to be, but they're going to bring back over 40 players. So there's a lot of players that they're going to be bringing back. Mookie Wilson, right? What about Mookie Wilson's play do you think was not indicative of, of character?
9: Mookie was awesome. I would go just to see Mookie. Okay, go so ahead.
2: all right, so you got Mookie Wilson. How I'll
9: tell you, would, you why M- Mookie Wilson ran around the bases faster than anybody, probably except for Lou Brock or uh, or what's his name for R- the Ricky athletics?
2: Right, Ricky Henderson. Right, but but right. I feel like you're making my point here, Larry. Right, so I just you, you know named one player that they're talking about bringing back for Old Timers Day, and you're you're complimenting him for his style of play.
9: Well, he the thing is. He, that's where you, the border is. His people, his age, because any older than that, they're not going to be able to do anything.
2: Well, how about uh, Howard Johnson?
9: Hojo was was a stand up guy, man, great guy. All right, so, I mean, so so
2: far yeah. we're two for two in terms of players that you're approving of.
9: Well. Um, you're going back pretty far to get to Hojo and Mookie. I'm, well, again, it's it, it, in
2: between. You know, it's an old timer. It's an old timer's game. They're old timers. All right. Um, I feel like we're kind of talking in circles there, Larry. Uh, I uh, I feel like I won that round. I don't. I feel like I don't often win these uh, intellectual chess matches with you, Larry. But I feel like I won that one. Um, and by the way, you mentioned uh, as a virtue. And again, I'm not anti-Mickey Mantle at all. Um, but Uh, You mentioned as a virtue Mickey Mantle playing his whole career with the Yankees. Back then, everybody played their whole career with the team because that was prior to um, free agency. You know, there was no free agency at the time. So all these players played under what was called the Reserve Clause. Um, And prior to the Catfish Hunter era and uh, Kurt Flood era, you had players that were bound almost owned by their owners. So they were all that way, unless they got traded. And who's going to trade Mickey Mantle? Tommy is on Staten Island. Hello, Tommy.
14: Hey, Frank, I don't know if that guy was
15: smoking, but He's... you put any of the 86 bets on an all-timers game, they're guaranteed
4: be watch.
2: Yeah, well, and so um, I think there's some Mets from that um, 2000 World Series team that would be good, maybe people yeah. like, uh, like yeah. Robin Ventura or uh,
15: Mike Piazza. Yeah. Well, I'm a Yankee fan, so I watch the Yankees all the time. This game all the time. They're bringing back guys from from the '90s. You know what I'm saying? Right,
2: right. Now, now that's, that's a good Bobby example. Williams. That's a good example. Like, um, you know, let it, and it doesn't have to be just a Met discussion, but uh,
15: somebody, and they still, and they, somebody, and they still watch what you call some, Joe Paterno shows up. Right. Well, Joe Pepitone is
2: somebody that had a lot of legal problems and they still let him play in old timers game in old timers day. Chad Curtis, who was a big part of that New York Yankees world championship team in uh, 1998, he was convicted of sexually assaulting three underage women. Um, He served seven years in prison and now he paid his debt to society. Should he be allowed to participate in the Yankees old timers game? Yeah. Why yeah. not? Well, that's what I'm asking, what is where do you draw Chibler- the line? What
15: about Jim Chibler- Well that's, Chibler- that's the next person Chibler- I was going Chibler- to ask you Chibler- about. Bandswater.
2: So your view, well, first of all, I think Lerich, he didn't end up getting acquitted, but he still, you're right, he still killed someone. Um, yes. I mean, excuse me, he didn't get convicted, but he still killed someone. The, um, the situation, so your view, just so I'm clear, Tommy, and I'm trying to kind of figure this out in my own head, is that when it comes to choosing the players for an old-timers game, uh, as long as they played, and as long as they still want to play, and as long as the fans want to see them, everybody should be allowed, no matter what your prior criminal history.
15: They're from your team, but they're from your team. You understand that they're your. Right. They, their, your, when you grew up, these your plays That's like you like like my father's age watching Mickey Mouse or, or like Yogi Berra mm-hmm. coming back home. From- Old Timers Day. Well,
2: let me okay. l- let's say hypothetically this was a football Old Timers Day and where it's the Bills or the San Francisco 49ers. Should they have OJ Simpson, who a lot of people, including me, believe is a murderer, should they have OJ Simpson yes. back for an Old Timers Day?
15: Yes. Really? What about, what about Joe Namath?
2: Well, yeah, well, again, (laughs) if we if we start making drunkenness a a crime, Tommy, I'm going to have a tough time. So let's not do that now. um, See, the thing is, I think there has to be a line, but I don't know where the line is. Is the line no convicted criminals, no convicted felons? Is the line no um, violent criminals? So I guess that excludes Vince Coleman. Does it exclude Brett Saberhagen? I don't know. That's what I'm trying to figure out. And so far, I got Larry, who kind of talked me in circles, and Tommy, to his credit, who wants to allow everybody. I don't know that I'm willing to go so far as to Tommy, and I'm pretty liberal on that stuff, but I'm not willing to go that far. Eight hundred eight four eight 848 wabc Al is in Manhattan. Hello there, Al. Good morning. Great show,
20: as always. Thank Good you. to interviews and everything. Uh, with the baseball, uh, here's the way I look at it. you got Pete hit the most hits forever, right? You have somebody like Barry B- Bobby Bonds, right, Barry Bonds. Guess what? They were on the junk, right? But were they the best at what they did in their time, even if they were tainted? Yes. It's just a game. Let them play. Mickey Mantle always said, if I would have treated myself better rather than 18 years, I could have gone a lot longer right. if That's I would have right. known. And, uh, oh, and with Murph, like, uh, uh, I think he left like 2004. Uh, they always accused him of being drunk, but it wasn't. He was very, very sick, you know. But the thing is this. It's just a damn game. Let these guys have a little day in the sun and, and meet the old-timers. It's like if you were going to a talker's convention and you got to see uh, this guy or that guy, you know, all your friends – that's
2: what it is. Well, I mean, uh, you know, th- that that it. has happened. You know, when I go to these radio rows at different uh-huh. talk show events, I was very eager to meet a lot of people that had been very controversial. Look, um, you, you know, uh, G. Gordon Liddy, a convicted felon. Roger Hedgecock That's was right. a convicted felon. Uh, Rush Limbaugh, never a convicted felon. But, uh, you know, ha- obviously his issues with uh, opioid abuse you are very Stein well
14: known.
20: You remember what George Steinbrenner said about Reggie Jackson, no, not George Steinbrenner. What did uh, Billy Martin say about George Steinbrenner and Reggie
2: Jackson? He said, you know one's he said? a born liar, the other's convicted.
20: 100% right. So there you got it. Yeah, You know what I mean? It's just a game. Let them have a little bit so, of
2: So, Al, I, I, now I like your attitude, and I think you might have sold me uh, at more of a level than Tommy did. So your view is essentially the same as his, that anybody that wants to play, anybody that played, should be able I to play. Lenny Dykstra in an
20: extra innings game. It was an extra innings game. It was a blowout, like 17-3. I saw him in the parking lot in the ninth inning, leaving so he could save time. <laughs>
9: of that damn parking lot.
20: The game was still going on. I kid you not. He had a big yellow Mitsubishi stallion. It stuck out like, like you wouldn't believe it. That is and the I most Lenny Dykstra
2: story I've ever heard. That's Lenny Dykstra in a nutshell right there. But so it's your view out... Al-
20: not the artist. That's what I said. Got it. He played got it. good so, ball.
2: Yeah. All right, so it's the same reason it's still okay to watch reruns of the Cosby show, even though we might not like Bill Cosby. Still okay to listen to Michael Jackson's music. Alive
20: or dead? Jethro on the Beverly Hillbillies. Dead. Alive. Alive. You surprised me. You surprised me.
2: That's funny. Uh, Al, I got to run. Thank you, Al. You know what? All right, maybe Al's right. Maybe everyone should get to play. Chad Curtis, convicted sex offender. O.J. Simpson. Well, he's not a med, obviously. Um, unconvicted murderer. Um, Bobby Ojeda, Ron Darling, Tim Tuffel. Maybe let everybody play. Maybe that's it. Jose Reyes, convicted wife batterer. You, you know, maybe everybody should play. All right, what do you think? 800-848-9222. I expected to hear more opposition to those controversial old ball players, but... This audience will always surprise me. If you have uh, thoughts on this or anything else we've covered, we have four open lines. We will get to you in just a moment. 800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
1: It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 77 WABC.
2: Now! Here's a little story I got to tell about three bad brothers you know so well. It started way back in history with that Rossier and me. my team. Been had a little horsey named Paul Revere. Just me and my horsey in a quart of beer. Riding across the land, kicking up sand, sharing spices on my tail because I'm in
10: demand. One lonely
4: the Beastie
2: Boys, Paul Revere. You know who does an incredible version of this song? I'm going to blow your mind. Maybe I've told you this. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I, I'm on my 14th hour of radio. I have no idea what I've told you. Um, you know who does an incredible version of this song? Juliette Huddy. I have seen her perform this song twice now. And I have to tell you, I think her version is better than the Beastie Boys. I, I'm only being slightly facetious. She's terrific at this. Um, hey, I want to remind you. So what day is today? Wednesday? Did we get that straightened out? Is today Wednesday? Wednesday. Okay. So when Thursday evening, I am going to be at a cigar and cocktails event uh, to raise some money for um, uh, a, a group called Lyrics for, the, for the, the, the Lyrics for Lucas Foundation and Sudsy, Sudden Unexplained Death Syndrome. And uh, I'm going to be there. That's Thursday night, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Alora Restaurante here in Manhattan. If you want to go to that, tickets are $250 each. Uh, just email lyricsforlucas at gmail.com. That's lyricsforlucas at gmail.com. Seems like a great cause. And uh, the fellow that reached out to me who lost his son, Lucas, uh, Albert, is a great listener from what I can tell. So if you want to participate in that event, I'm going to be there. It's here in Manhattan Thursday night at 6. Uh, just email lyricsforlucas at com. And my brother and sister are uh, still trying to raise some money for their efforts in the New York City Marathon for charity. If you want to help them out, uh, the link is on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. You know what I realized yesterday? I am not just booked every single day for the foreseeable future, I am either double or triple booked every single day for the foreseeable future. Because Thursday night, I, I, I've got to figure out something else calendar wise. Thursday night, I also told a friend of mine, Bob, that I would have dinner with him and his son. So I'm double booked for Thursday. I have to maybe try and get Bob to move it to the following Thursday or come to this event and then kill two birds with one stone kind of a deal. Maybe that. And then Saturday is supposed to be my brother Nicholas's bachelor party. He has us playing softball in 86-degree heat in Brooklyn, which is, hey, I'm all about it. I could play in, in anything. I could play in a tidal wave. And a lot. most of the players playing are a good deal younger than me because my, my brother and all his friends and my other brother, they're both significantly younger than me. I guarantee you they think that they're, they're going to get one over on me in Saturday's game. I am going to put on a, a softball display, the likes of which you haven't seen in years, on uh, on Saturday in Brooklyn, but I'm also triple booked for Saturday. We got invited to this one-year-old birthday party in Saturday, on Saturday in Brooklyn, so who knows, maybe it'll rain and everything will be canceled, who knows. And uh, my friend JFK, who's been on the show before, he's having a barbecue Saturday. So I have to figure out a better way of managing invites. And then I made the mistake last week of saying that I was free on Saturday, like last Saturday, you know what happened? I figured people would say, oh, good, Frank wants to not have anything on his schedule today. I was overwhelmed with people reaching out to me and say, hey, Frank, I heard you're free on Saturday. Maybe we can hang out now. No, I, I think you totally missed the the point. So, uh, so honestly, I do hope to see some of you Thursday night at this Lyrics for Lucas event. And uh, if you want to help uh, Alexander and Claudia out and EB in their efforts to find a cure, uh, go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fan. Those of you that are holding, we'll get to you in a minute. Until then, your influence counts, so use
15: it.
1: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Woo! Oh,
2: truth is i am kind of tired i uh a long day yesterday but honestly it's doing what i love so you're not going to be getting too tired uh doing radio uh it's the drive home (laughs) doing radio that can be challenging by the way i heard yesterday on yesterday's podcast some people were saying that this song i'm not tired yet wasn't in the podcast uh philippe you're you're in charge of the podcast at least on an interim basis do you know anything about that I've heard nothing of the sorts. I see. Now, I also did hear that we left one of the guests' names. We omitted it from the podcast description yesterday.
3: I've heard something of that sort.
2: And has that been rectified? It has
3: been rectified. Why would we Why would we do that? Why would we leave somebody's name out of the podcast? Well, we uh, forgot when there was... There was there's, a, there's a lot of guests. You know, sometimes you just... I thought I checked them all off. We had two yesterday, right? Three. Three? See, even you forgot. It's, Right. Like three.
2: And and who was the unlucky person that had their it was name? Tony Woodleaf.
3: Oh uh, you
2: know Tony Woodleaf was great. It was a good guest. I really mean, good. no one will know how great he was because they couldn't hear anything that he was saying because he was on the phone. But trust me, he was great.
6: <laughs> Wasn't he the first guest? Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Right. So <laughs> he not so the first guest. Take me through your process, Philippe. Like how do you decide oh, all right, well, I forgot this person is there in the description. Um usually I I mean, I'm not picking on you. No, no, no. no, I've made all sorts. I thought – you heard what a brain surgeon I am. I thought Stephen uh, Greenstreet was uh, the former director of ATIP. So I'm I'm in no position to judge anybody. I thought the eclipse was three days before it happened. So I have no idea what's going on. I'm just curious about the process.
3: I I, I post each interview separately. You know this. uh, And usually what I do is – I cheat a little bit, and I I write a description for the interview, and I just copy and paste it into the the full show description, and I guess I forgot to to copy one. Interesting. Okay. All right. Well. He's in now. It's been rectified. Excellent. Great. Well.
2: All right. Hey, those of you that are holding to talk um, baseball or any other topic, please continue to hold. I'm going to get to you in a minute. But I had to bring this to your attention because I found it so interesting. There is an organization called Open the Books. They're basically a government watchdog group. Um, they call themselves nonpartisan, and I and I think they are nonpartisan. But I, I think the their findings are usually more embraced by the right because it's a it's an organization that deals with exposing government spending, and that kind of thing is much more popular, at least in the media sphere, with. Right of center audiences than left of center. But I would think wherever you are on the political spectrum, you would want to know how your tax dollars are spent, right? I don't think that's a right wing thing or a left wing thing. So there's this group, Open the Books. You can check them out at openthebooks.com. By the way, I want to be clear here in the interest of full disclosure. My wife happens to work for this group, but she has nothing to do with any of the investigations or any of the data. She's just a writer. You know, they give her data, and she writes. That's the totality of her role there. I'm not minimizing it. She does a great job, and I think it's very valuable to that entity. But it's not like I'm talking about this subject because she works there. That's certainly not the case. (laughs) So the founder and CEO of OpenTheBooks.com, Adam Angievsky, has done a very interesting investigation. Now, I want to give – I want to give the – Primer, that I'm not a basher of anybody. There are public officials that I like, public officials that I dislike. Most public officials, though, are somewhere in between uh, on on the spectrum of like and dislike. Because almost anybody you can say something good about. And almost anybody you can say something bad about. So I always try to be fair, give everybody the benefit of the doubt. And that includes... Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is very controversial in some circles, very celebrated in other circles. I have been very critical of Fauci, but I don't think unfairly so. I thought um, in his questioning by Rand Paul when when he would testify before the U.S. Senate, I think Rand Paul generally got the better of their exchanges. That being said, you know, I think he's a, a dedicated public servant. But I must say, this investigation that they have done is really interesting, and it's also very disturbing. This is all documented. You can look all of this up yourself. So the National Institute of Health, or NIH, is a government institution. They are Dr. Fauci's employer. Last year, this is all documented. Go to openthebooks.com, look it up, challenge the data, whatever. This nothing is just an internet conspiracy theory here. Last year, the National Institutes of Health, Dr. Fauci's employer, they doled out 30 billion, with a B, $30 billion in government grants to roughly 56,000 recipients. Now that's a lot of money—thirty billion dollars of your money that was handed to fifty-six thousand other people. Thirty billion dollars of taxpayer money handed out by the NIH to other people. Uh, now that buys a lot of clout and a lot of favor within the scientific community, or uh, within the research communities, the uh, business, the healthcare industry, for instance. So, Open the Books did this investigation, and they found. Hundreds of millions of dollars in payments also go the other way. So these are royalty payments from third-party payers, think like a pharmaceutical company or something, back to the NIH and individual NIH scientists. Everybody following this so far? So the NIH doles out $30 billion in government grants. to 56,000 people, the NIH and NIH individual scientists also get royalty payments from these third-party payers. Got it? It's like a revolving door. It's a carousel. Our money goes out, and then pharmaceutical industry money goes in, and other people as well. So they estimate that between 2010 and 2020... More than $350 million in royalties were paid by third parties to the agency, the NIH, and NIH scientists who are credited as co-inventors. So one of these NIH scientists participates in the development of a treatment or a drug, and they're credited as co-inventors. So they get royalty payments. So, because those payments enrich the NIH and its scientists, each and every royalty payment could be a potential conflict of interest. And in the eyes of Open the Books, and I agree with this, it needs disclosure. I mean, think about it about the potential conflict of interest. If I'm Dr. Fauci or Dr. Collins or any doctor, and I'm giving public health advice, and I say, hey, everybody um, go uh, take this drug to deal with diabetes or take this vaccine to prevent the flu or whatever else, wouldn't you want to know if that doctor that's giving you that advice is being paid by the person that is making money from that vaccine? I would. So what OpenTheBooks.com did They forced the NIH to disclose over 22,100 royalty payments totaling nearly $134 million paid to the agency and nearly 1,700 NIH scientists. 1,700 NIH scientists. These payments occurred during the most recent available period – 2009 through 2014. We have nothing available after that. The production is the result of a federal lawsuit that opened the books brought against the NIH. So the agency admitted to holding 3,000 pages of line-by-line royalties since 2009. Think about that for a second. Why are they holding back these 3,000 pages of line-by-line royalties? Do you think they're doing that because they think people are going to be over the moon, heels-over-head happy? And they won't be able to control themselves because they're going to be so happy with how their money is spent? I suspect not. Why won't they release this line-by-line royalty data? So, so far, they've produced only 1,200 pages the next 1,800 pages of production will cover the period 2015 through 2020. So what the NIH has produced to date gives us some insight into these undisclosed royalty payments. For example, only 900 scientists were estimated to be receiving royalties. So now we know the universe is much larger. It's whatever I said. It's, uh, I think, 1,700. Since the NIH documents are heavily redacted, again, why are they redacted? That's what I'd like to know. We can only see how many payments each scientist received and separately aggregate dollars per the NIH. So this is completely at odds with the spirit of the open records law and maybe even the actual law. So this is what they found. This has all been disclosed. It's documented. You can look at it at openthebooks.com. You can read it for yourself and find whatever other data you can. This is what they found uh, about agency leadership and top scientists at the NIH receiving royalty payments. Listen to this. Anthony Fauci, who is already the top paid bureaucrat in the federal government, who earns a salary of $456,000 uh, over $456,000. He's the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He received 23 royalty payments during the five-year period that we're talking about, 2009 to 2014. He received 23 royalty payments, Fauci did, as, a, as getting credit for being a co-inventor of whatever drug or whatever treatment. We don't know how much. NIH has redacted that information. Well, if we know Anthony Fauci's salary, don't you think we ought to have a right to know how much he's getting in these royalty payments? And who from? Is he getting royalty payments from Pfizer? Is he getting royalty payments from Johnson & Johnson? Is he getting royalty payments from Moderna? And if he is, should he have to disclose that When he goes on television, you know, I'm I'm a big advocate of disclosure. When I would talk with Colonel Douglas McGregor and Colonel Daniel Davis, uh, I would always ask them the same question, no matter what issue we were talking about related to the military. I'd always say, why is it that what I'm hearing from you is so much different from what I hear every other retired colonel say on MSNBC and Fox News? And they would all tell me the same thing, because those guys all work for defense contractors, and we don't. So wouldn't it be something if when, uh, when one of these colonels or generals, General Kane, for instance, went on television, it said these are the boards that he's on, these are the defense contractors he's consulting to. So at least when he gives his analysis, at least the public has a right to know who's paying him. And that those industries stand to make a lot of money. You know, I remember I was having a conversation with either Ralph Nader or Jesse Ventura one time. And one of them said, and this is not an original idea, others have said this too, that when a politician goes on television, they should have to wear the patches of all the corporations that are bankrolling their campaign. Almost like race car drivers. So you know those race car drivers, they come out in their uniforms and it says Pepsi and Coca-Cola and whatever. Budweiser, Anheuser-Busch. Wouldn't it be nice if when a politician came out on television, it said all the people, all the industries that were funding them, big oil, big pharma, um, you know, whatever, big, big, big the trial lawyers, whatever. Now, I think the same is true for Dr. Fauci. If he's receiving money as he's telling people to take certain drugs or vaccines, we ought to know who's paying him and how much. Why don't we? So I applaud Open the Books for bringing this to our attention, and I wish the NIH would actually, pardon me, the redundancy of the expression, open their books and let us know how much their scientists are being paid. Fauci's not the only one. Francis Collins, the NIH director from 2009 through 2021, received 14 royalty payments. Clifford Lane, Fauci's deputy at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, received eight payments. So we know the number of payments to each scientist. We still don't know how much money was paid because the dollar figure was redacted, deleted, from the disclosure. So it's been a real struggle to get any useful information out of this agency, the NIH, on its royalty payments. So the question you have to ask yourself, the question I'm asking, what is the NIH hiding Why don't they want us to know how much their scientists are earning in royalty payments? Consider how the NIH is using taxpayer money to try and keep taxpayers ignorant in the dark. They defied a Freedom of Information Act law and refused to even acknowledge the open record request for royalty payments. They used expensive taxpayer-funded lawyers to slow-walk these royalty disclosures, releasing the oldest royalties first. And although the agency admits to holding 3,000 pages, it's going to take 10 months to produce them, 300 pages per month. So they're heavily redacting key information on the royalty payments. For example, the agency erased the payment amount and who paid it, the two most important things. This makes the production of these documents almost worthless. So why is a government agency that you pay for paying all this money in lawyers to keep us in the dark about what their scientists are earning? Now, maybe there's nothing to be ashamed of. Maybe like there's nothing wrong. Tell us, oh, Anthony Fauci had 23 royalty payments of $10,000 each. What's the big deal? Tell us how much he earned and who paid them? I don't think that's a controversial view. To me, the fact that the NIH is working so hard to keep this in, us in the dark on this, that's really alarming. And the agency has become a lot more secretive. In 2005, the Associated Press successfully used Freedom of Information Act to crack open the NIH royalty database. Back then, this is 17 years ago... AP, AP, they found 900 scientists collected $9 million in royalties. 900 scientists collected $9 million in royalties. Furthermore, 51 scientists, uh, NIH royalty recipients, were then working on experiments involving inventions for which they were already being paid. Let me repeat that. So 51 scientists working for the NIH, government Workers, government servants, were receiving royalties and then working on experiments involving inventions for which they were already being paid. Among those 51 scientists doing experiments involving inventions for which they were being paid royalties was Anthony Fauci, then and now the director of the National Institute of uh, Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Fauci received... Uh, Apparently, between um, Fauci received $45,072.82 between 1997 and 2004 for a patent license on an experimental AIDS treatment. NIH funded that treatment with $36 million to this day. Fauci continues to receive all sorts of NIH-approved perks without a lot of accountability. And this is just the stuff we know about. For example, last year, February of 2021, Fauci received a $1 million prize from the Dan David Foundation in Israel for, quote, speaking truth to power during the Trump administration. He got a $1 million for telling the truth? I mean, give me a break. This was a fellow that was telling people, you don't need to wear a mask. And I realized that the facts change. And then when asked to explain why he changed his tune, he said, well, we didn't want to run on masks. We wanted people to um, not leave some for the first response, the uh, health care workers, the frontline workers. So he literally explained his lie. How does he then get a million dollars for telling the truth? So the NIH is this revolving door of tens of billions of dollars in government grant making, coupled with hundreds of millions of dollars in private, non-transparent royalty payments. There needs to be a little transparency here. They say sunshine is the best disinfectant. Well, I want some disinfectant on this unholy alliance between NIH, the drugs they're recommending, and the, the sectors that they're that they're working with. Rather than all this redaction and court battles, the government ought to disclose these royalty payments as a matter of routine. And this should not be controversial. This is something that I think everybody should agree upon. Agree, disagree, 800-848-9222. Comment as you see fit. That's 1-800-848-WABC. I'll get to everybody that was holding on whatever topic they wanted to talk about. Al is in Manhattan. Hello, Al.
19: Hey, Frank, Frank, that was amazing what you just said. You know, you got me enraged before with the baseball, and you got me astonished now with this thing with Fau- Fauci. It's just amazing. I don't know what to talk about first. Well, hey, so let me go. Go quick, ahead. Let me go real quick. It's amazing. It, this was one of the best things I've ever heard you talk about. Amazing. Anyway, um, let's talk about the open the book. Them so that they can continue that great work.
2: Well, um, they're not—they're nonprofit, so I mean, they work on donations. They get donations.
19: Right. I donate
2: money to them. Yeah, so, I, I, I'm sure they'd appreciate it. You go to OpenTheBooks.com. I guess one of the people that would be grateful is my wife, because uh, you'll be paying her salary in part.
19: I'm most, I'm most definitely sending them money. Also, I'm sending Curtis money too when he runs for Congress. Yeah. Okay, let's get back to that baseball thing. Let me give you a scenario, and you tell me. I can. You can answer your own questions that you ask, is it right or wrong that we should put certain people in the old-timer game? Let's say you have a child. I know you have a child. We're not using him. This is only my opinion. Yeah, got it. Don't take it personally. Let's say you have a child that has a tutor that comes to your house and teaches your child math. but. As he's teaching math, or she's teaching whoever, he pulls his penis out, and your child sees it. Now, oh my God, what did he do? He must be sick. Okay, we're going to give him four weeks of therapy. You send him for four weeks of therapy. When will you allow that man to come back in your house to tutor to your child? Again? Well, never. 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 So here's your answer. So you, your you view you
2: is these controversial players, they should not be welcome at the old-timers game.
19: Certain ones. Now you said I got engaged with the guy that uh, he he got involved with three younger girls. Yeah, Chad, Chad
2: Curtis, the Yankee. Chad Curtis.
19: Why don't we, why don't we have three girls' fathers <laughs> and say, should Chaz play or not? Ask them. This is really something. Are our, our ethics... And uh, it's, they're all getting polluted. They're, they're being watered down. And people are saying, ah, well, it's not that bad. No, it is that bad. We protect our kids. Now, if you're going to listen to some person with different views that's a, that's a lot lighter than us, say, well, maybe they're right. No. you got to go with your gut. My gut, as soon as you said it, it's no. Now, take Darryl Strawberry. All right, he had an addiction. Addiction is going to allow a little bit of a leeway for. Now, you can also say, well, the guy that pulled his penis out, he's got an addiction, too. Wait a second. Daryl Strawberry hurt himself. This guy that's raping young girls or whatever, not raping, consensual whatever it may be, he's hurting young kids. So if you want to go outside the box and hurt other people, any right that you are entitled to should be taken away from you. But if you want to hurt yourself, that's when you go to therapy.
2: So that's interesting. So, so your view, and I kind of like, I kind of like the line that you're drawing, is if you hurt someone else, whether it's through domestic violence like Jose Reyes did, or uh, sexual uh, assault uh, like Chad Curtis did, or uh, throwing a firecracker at a kid's face like Vince Coleman did, then that's it. Your persona non grata. Um, but if you um, just do something to yourself, um, you know, then that should not disqualify you.
19: Right. Exactly right. And if you go and get help, then you should get applauded by walking on the field because not only were you a great ball player, but you conquered something greater than your record. You beat this drug thing. Now, maybe another segment you'll have in the future will be about fentanyl and the guy that we have in the white House that does absolutely nothing. I come from a drug-riddled neighborhood. I had friends of mine. Either you gambled or you did drugs. And I've seen so many people get affected, but I saw more than the person. I looked beyond the person and saw the mother, the father, the brother, the sister, how everybody gets affected because they can't help their own child. Yeah. Listen, if you want to be screwed up in life, you can do it on your own. You don't need somebody else to do it for you by abusing you. Hit him and raise grabbing
15: a woman's neck. Yeah. Al,
2: thank you. Thank you. I wanna try and get in one or two other people here before we do the thousand dollar minute. Frank is on Long Island. Hello, Frank.
17: Yeah, uh, Frank, thanks. Uh just the issue of intellectual property for scientists who are funded by the government. That was a, an issue I used to deal with in periphery jobs. I used to manage a lot of uh business ends of science communities and stuff. So. And the only thing I'm gonna say it's a very complicated issue. American science institution is among the very, very best in the world. It's very important that we balance things so that the scientists can be motivated on the one hand to, to develop these wonderful technologies, science, science uh, developments, health things. Uh, but also, I, I also agree that when, they, when regulation gets in the middle of things, uh, that's tricky, and I also know for a fact that intellectual property negotiations were in the middle of a lot of things very early on in the COVID when they were developing mm. some of the. Uh, uh, what,
2: and, and Frank, uh, I am all for you know uh, scientists that develop life-saving medications being paid, but I, the only thing I'm saying here is uh, let's disclose to the public how much they're being paid and who's paying them.
17: Totally agree with that concept.
2: Yeah, that, that's all totally I'm saying. Agree. I and uh I, I just the fact that they're working so hard to, to hide it, it just looks it looks I don't know, it looks kinda weird.
17: I would agree with that and 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 the only thing it's you know, there's all sorts of lawyers involved, government lawyers, uh contractor lawyers, huge lawyers who work for huge contractors, and uh very, very ex very expensive lawyers, <laughs> I know them, and uh, and they're all defending their 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 uh, rights and and things. So it gets I'm just saying it gets really complicated.
11: Mm-hmm. And, now that uh, it does, I completely, Frank.
17: Completely, I completely agree about the uh 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 you know making sure the public can see it because as soon as the public, I have a lot of experience. As soon as the public thinks you're high level, fellow it becomes a huge issue, usually ten million million times bigger than it should be, but rightfully so. The public should be informed.
2: Of Absolutely. Business, Absolutely. Me. Frank, thank you for the call. Hey, if you want to uh, earn a $1,000, we are going to disclose that we give it to you. Uh, you can be the seventh caller to 800-848-9222. And if you are the seventh caller, then you will get to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. Answer them correctly, win $1,000 on the $1,000 Minute straight ahead. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on this show, join our Facebook group. We will post all the songs in there. Uh, Just go on Facebook and uh, search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. Uh, Now is the time for some lucky, lucky person to win, hopefully, some money.
1: The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the Thousand Dollar Minute... Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank
2: Morano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Let's meet today's contestant, Mike, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Hello, Mike. How you doing? Mike, uh, How did? what was your experience like voting in yesterday's elections?
9: You know, I didn't vote because I'm not registered Republican or Democrat. Ah, see. I'm registered right
2: now. You registered what?
9: Right to life.
2: Oh, they have a right to life registration in Pennsylvania? Yes, they do. Oh, I didn't know that. We used to have a right to life party in New York, but they lost uh, ballot access. Don't you think you should be able to participate in primaries in Pennsylvania?
9: No, because I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. They're choosing their guy. Yeah, all right. I would like to have more right to life because then that would show the the candidates and and the people... How many people are really for this right to
2: life? All right. Well, hey, I guess you know. we'll agree to disagree on that one. All right. Uh, Mike, have you heard this segment before?
9: Yes, I did. I even told the guy, don't get me nervous. With It's not that hard. It's not that easy. You know, not that
2: hard. It That's, isn't, jinx that's right. It's not that hard. Don't get nervous. Uh, all right. So let's get started. The timer will begin after I ask you the first question. And then uh, when you get a question right, we're just going to move on to the next one. You ready to go? Yeah, go
9: ahead.
2: Let's go. I don't want to keep you from anything, Mike. You sound like you're in a hurry. Okay. Um, n- uh. n- all right. Name a word that rhymes with B. B it
20: rhymes with B? Uh,
2: C. As commonly used, what does UFO stand for?
14: Unidentified object
2: we'll take it yeah okay who nominates who, who nominates the justices to the U.S. Supreme Court President who defeated David Dinkins in the 1989 race for mayor of New York City Rudy Giuliani what former WABC talk show host founded the Drudge Report
9: what's his name the guy's name is Drudge
2: what two countries applied to join NATO this week
9: Finland,
20: and
2: Sweden. What actress played the bride in the Kill Bill movies? What was that? I didn't hear you. What actress played the bride in the Kill Bill movies? I
14: didn't watch the Kill
2: Bill movies. All right, you want to make a guess? Uh, is it therm, thermal? Whatever her name is, it is thermo Whatever her name is, that is correct. Um, but uh, so you got seven right, and we, uh, we ran out of time. You did very well, though, Mike. Um, but oh we, <laughs> well, you get a giant case of satisfaction and uh, a uh, a piece of d- the other side of midnight merchandise. Give uh, Philippe, grab Mike's information from the Keystone State, since. Um, he doesn't have to worry about voting in primaries anytime soon. He'll, wanna, he'll, he'll want something nice. Let's get him something extra nice. So, thank you, Mike. Uh, thank you, Mike. Thank you, Philippe.
6: Um, there was a discrepancy.
2: What, on UFO?
6: No. On, what, on Uma the, Thurman? No, on the 89 question. The, the Dinkins.
2: Oh, yeah. That was my error, actually. Um, he said Julianne. I know, but he, he was right. I'm, I was wrong. You know, you know what? We should let him play again tomorrow because I screwed him up. I said, who defeated David Dink- Dinkins in the 1989 race for mayor? And David Dinkins won the 1989 race for mayor at defeating Rudy Giuliani. So he was right if I asked the question properly. Right. If, right. If, if if I asked the question, who defeated Dinkins in the 1993 race for mayor? Giuliani. He would have been Giuliani. He's right. Or if I asked... Who lost to David Dinkins in the nineteen eighty nine race for mayor? The answer is still Giuliani. So, you know, I, I feel bad. let's let Mike play again tomorrow. Let's get Mike's information. Let's let him play again tomorrow. Because he did well. He got seven right, you know. Uh we were a little liberal on that UFO acceptance. But then he
6: backtracked, didn't he?
2: Back, yeah, he corrected, so he corrected it. He corrected it, you know, and um you know I like Mike. He's a spirited guy. He's my kind of listener. So um We'll let him play again tomorrow. All right. See, let it not be said that we're not uh, forgiving. Hey, by the way, um, did you see, Matt Blaze, that my favorite wrestler, Ric Flair, is going to be making a comeback for one final dream match?
6: Six-man tag team?
2: Yeah, so tell me about this. I just saw the headline. What is the story?
6: I just saw I saw it too, that he has uh, been uh, training again for a six-man tag team match, not in any... Uh, it's not in AEW, it's not in WWE, it's in some other wrestling federation. Was
2: well, it t- TNA?
6: No, TNA is done. It's done. There's no more TNA. TNA. Right now, is there still TNA? TNA? Oh. Philippe just told me there is TNA. See how much I know. But I don't know where, I just heard. I just saw the same thing. That he is wrestling and he's what, 70, Three. One, 73? 73. I, I don't know if I want to watch this.
2: I want to watch it. I, I mean, I, he, he's. you know what, you're right. Even 20 years ago, when he wrestled Sting on that last edition of Nitro... It was such a terrible match. And then he continued. He came back. He got himself back in shape and then continued to wrestle for another seven years
6: or so. You can't beat the way he went out with Shawn Michaels. Yes. With Shawn Michaels mouthing, I'm sorry, and then super kicked him. He he said, I
3: love you. That's not the actual way he went out. He ended up coming out of retirement in TNA just a couple years later. Right. He completely spoiled it. He was terrible there. That's the
2: thing. You know what? The same is true with radio. Same is true with movie stars. Sometimes you have to know when to hang him up, saying so. But sometimes you know it's nice to see one last uh, thing. You know what? This is we've gone through this before. People that stay too long at the party. I think the best example is um, Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali not only did a whole bunch of fans see him as a shell of his former self, but because he stayed boxing so much longer than after he should have retired, there's a good chance that that worsened his Parkinson's condition. Uh, That's one example. You know, um, a lot of people think that um, Kurt Russell, after he had the stroke and had all those problems with speech, maybe shouldn't have continued making films. A lot of people said the same thing with Dick Clark. Now, I'm not sure I agree with that. Um, But, you know, a lot of people said that. Um, My friend Barry Farber, I hate to say this, and I know his daughters listen to this show, and I hope I'm not upsetting anybody. Barry was a close friend of mine literally until the day he died. But um, if you listen to Barry in the last four or five years that he was on the radio, it was difficult for those of us that were fans of Barry to listen to that uh, because he didn't sound like he did. Uh, Bob Grant, for the last year or two that he was on the air, I think we can acknowledge that that wasn't exactly Bob Grant in his prime. Uh, Bella Lugosi, we want to remember Bella Lugosi as uh, Dracula or and the role in Black Friday. We don't want to remember um, Bella Lugosi as he was in Plan Nine from Outer Space or Bride of the Atom, Bride of the Monster, whatever it's called. You know, so sometimes you have to know when to hang him up, and maybe, maybe Ric Flair is past that point. However, I'm still going to watch it. Whenever this six-man tag team uh, match, and apparently it's going to include the Rock and Roll Express as well, whenever that happens, I'm going to watch it because I just can't help but watch Ric Flair.
6: And it, the Rock and Roll Express too. Yeah, I mean, like these guys are still like it's 1983
13: <laughs> it's, running around right, with mullets right.
6: and. But I mean, I, I guess I want to see Flair do the do the chop. Yeah, one last time, right? One last time. Do a couple of woos. Yeah. He's not going to do the running into the ring rope, into the turnbuckle and turn upside down. I don't think he can do that move anymore. You know
2: what it is? And they used this example on Billions recently. Um, It's kind of like, and again, I, I, I hate to keep using sports points of reference, but sports is the area where it's easiest to see someone who was great stick with it over the hill and and not be great. It's like Willie Mays when he was with the Mets. When Willie Mays came to the Mets or when Hank Aaron went to the Brewers, it was a different situation. I mean, they damaged their legacy to some extent. Some Mickey Mantle said he should have retired earlier. And um, you know, he did things uh, like strike out more frequently and drop fly balls, which he never did in his younger days. So, I, I see both sides of it. You know, I remember when there was—it never took place—but for years there was speculation that there was going to be this big prize fight. Um, this was in the 2000s, I think, between George Foreman and Larry Holmes. It was going to be their last fight, and it kept getting postponed. And I remember my uncle Carmine um, said, "Well, I, I hope they will have this fight before one of them dies, because the two of them look like they're about ready for an old age home." So. It happens in radio, it happens in movies, it happens in sports, it happens in pro wrestling. How do you know when's the right time to call it quits? Um, I don't know. And sometimes, you know where it happens all the time? Politics. People are always trying to make these political comebacks. And oftentimes, it's clear that they shouldn't have tried to make that comeback. It includes with friends of mine. At times. So uh, that's that. Now, a couple other things. Um, we will do the thousand. You know, we had a, people, a few people that have been holding. Let me get to some calls here and then I'll run through some other stories here. Biana is in Brooklyn. Hello, Biana.
4: Yes. Hi, Frank. You know, speaking of um, what you were just speaking of, Nelson Mandela retired and then he came back. So, and, you know, he came back, so it, it's possible. But thank you for taking my call. I was going to speak on the uh, the uh, pro- platform, but I just wanted to mention, because you were talking about persons who were protesting outside of um, uh, politician's home.
2: Well, in the case I, of the Florida legislation, it's not just politicians. It's anyone's home.
4: Sure, great, because protesting near a person's home is risky. And, Frank, with all due respect to, to Google, no personal address should be listed, and um, and I mean this cordially, okay, uh, or peacefully. I do not want any of my family's uh, addresses to be listed. And well, Bianna, are, are, family... are you
2: are you registered to vote?
4: Mm-hmm. Of course. So I could go.
2: I could go to the mm-hmm. Board of Elections in four hours mm-hmm. and give them mm-hmm. your name and get your home address. Uh, are you sure about that? Positive. Would Would you be using the uh, legal
4: freedom of no freedom no of, um, information? Could, no,
2: you could type in any registered voter's name and get their address. That guy Chris from the Catskills did it with me. He looked up my voter registration and sent the pizza to my house.
4: Interesting. I had I had a pizza shop call me the other day. It was probably Chris from
2: the Catskills oh. doing.
4: <laughs> okay. Have Have a great season, Frank. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Bianca. Appreciate it. Sean is in Park Ridge. Hello.
21: Hey, uh, Frank, um, I want to uh, mention about uh, what you were just talking about as far as when to hang it up. And I think one subject matter is um, music. Music is totally ah, you like that. You're right. And can I give you two examples please, real quick? Please, please. Uh, one is, and I love both of these bands. I'm a huge fan of both of them. One is Genesis, uh, in particular, Phil Collins. Phil Collins uh, was singing, you know, for the band on the last tour, but, you know, he's got a lot of health issues, and a lot of people said, hey, you know, Phil isn't who he was, and he isn't, but, you know, uh, does he hang it up, and you don't see him ever again, or do you at least get to see the last tour with Phil Collins and Genesis?
2: And uh, so what do you, what where do you air on that side? Do you air on remembering Genesis as you wanted to remember them or do you air on the side of uh you know that uh you know see them one last time?
21: I you know what I'm I'm all for one last time because you know what Phil Collins to me before being a singer is a great drummer and he mm. wasn't drumming and like hacking up the drums and doing a horrible job. In fact it was really excellent because his son uh Nicholas actually played drums and uh Phil sang and you know he he did okay and uh I'd rather see him one more time but I'd like to give you another example of the band Rush uh Neil Peart the drummer who you know sadly died but before that um he you know obviously is one of the best drummers in history um in in rock and roll and he always said you know he always wanted to go out on top. He didn't want to be playing like, you know, 10 years later than he should have been, um, and kind of just like, you know, See, I, it,
2: I really respect I mean? that. You know, John Gambling was the same way in radio. He could still be on the air today, but he chose to hang it up, um, you know, six years ago when he was still really in his prime. He didn't want to stay and have people remember him as a shell of his former self. I, I give him a lot of credit for that.
21: Yeah, and, and you know, ironically, what happened with Neil Peart You know, he didn't even know, uh, you know, they retired and they ended at the end of their game. And Rush was together for 40 years, like unheard of, really, uh, for any bands to stay together that long. And then uh, a year and a half later, he found out he had cancer of the brain. And sadly, uh, two or three years later, he died.
2: No, that is sad. That is sad. Sean, thanks. Uh, Appreciate that observation very much. Yeah, music is one of those fields where sometimes it's clear that people should get off the stage. Um, you know, people said that with Sinatra. People said Sinatra was performing long after he should have. He should have been. Um, but how do you tell Frank Sinatra you shouldn't be performing anymore? You know, he's Sinatra. You can't. Um, you know what? What a field that that is like that. Being a trial lawyer, there's such an energy and a quick wittedness that's necessary. To try cases. Now, most lawyers don't try cases. Most cases don't go to trial. You meet a a criminal defense attorney these days, you're lucky if you find one that's ever been to trial. When I, you know, just when I started watching cases as an observer in court 17, 18 years ago, you'd go into the courtroom and you'd say, okay, and I used to like to question trial lawyers. I still do. How many cases have you tried? How many cases have you tried? They'd say 10, 6, Eight, nine, 20, if you're a real veteran, then you ask the people that today, how many cases have you tried? Zero, one, two, three, you know, it's a very low number, very few cases go to trial. But what ends up happening is when you get jammed up in a criminal case of some sort, you want to hire someone that's great. Someone that's got a great reputation, a lot of times a big name, and sometimes a big price tag that comes with that big name, and you want to get somebody that you've heard is good. Oh, I want to get so-and-so, because uh, they got an acquittal in this case or that case. And then you end up getting somebody that's way past their prime, that no longer has the the fastball that they once did. They've lost a couple of miles per hour off that fastball. And you see it. You see, I've seen it myself. I don't want to mention anyone's name, because I don't want to insult anyone but i've seen it you see these trial lawyers that should have uh, gotten off the stage hey uh we'll do 15 seconds of fame next those of you that are holding we'll get to you anybody else that wants to be heard for 15 seconds now's the time there's one two three four five open lines 800-848-9222 that's 1-800-848-WABC this is the other side of midnight straight ahead great Andy B., uh, who does one of our theme songs, a great guy. Uh, He and I are supposed to collaborate on a Thanksgiving song. So hopefully by the time this Thanksgiving comes around, you will have a Thanksgiving song written by the two of us and voiced at least the vocals, spoken word style by me. We'll see how that goes. Now, before we get to 15 seconds of fame... A lot of you have been asking me if I've seen this film, 2,000 Mules. I have not, in part because I don't have the 90 minutes to spend, in part because I don't want to spend the $30 on it. If I could see it for free, I would. And in part because uh, I've seen a lot of um, analyses of this film, 2,000 Mules, this Dinesh D'Souza film about uh, election fraud. And it looks like... I mean, there are some things that they raise in this film that are true, but it looks like there are some pretty big gaps in the accuracy of this film, and I'm very reluctant to overlook those gaps. So what I have done is I have invited, or next week I'm working on this, I am inviting Isaac Saul, who has done, I think, the best fact check of that film, and I'm going to invite Dinesh D'Souza on simultaneously so that um, Dinesh can talk about the film and that Isaac Saul can rebut the points that are made in the film. Um, and then we'll give a balanced discussion about it. And if uh, Dinesh doesn't want to come on, then maybe we'll have on uh, one of the experts that he features in this film. We'll see. So I'm working on that for uh, maybe Tuesday or Wednesday of next week. We'll see where it goes. And if one of them doesn't want to come on, I'll have the other one on. You know, that's the way it goes. You know, I'd like to have them both on together so they can talk to each other, question each other. But if that doesn't work, then so be it. But um, that documentary, they say, is the best-selling political documentary of the last 10 years. So far, it's made about $10 million. So, look, there's a lot of money to be made in telling people what they already believe. And uh, I think with a lot of election ink or um, left-wing ink or right-wing ink, I think there's a lot of that go- that goes on. People write a book, Donald Trump is the worst president of all time, and they will sell a million copies. People write a book, Donald Trump's the greatest president of all time, and they'll sell a million p- copies. It's, there's a lot of money to be made in that. And, and I'm wondering if 2,000 Mules maybe falls into that category. There's not a lot of money to be made in nuance. There should be, because it's very nuanced. But well, who knows? All right, time now uh, for you to be heard for 15 seconds. It is time for
1: the other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame.
11: Victor in Manhattan. Now now that it's been proven that a Chinese pilot deliberately crashed the China Eastern jet, then what reason is there to doubt that a a Chinese scientist didn't deliberately release the COVID virus from the Wuhan lab?
2: Joe and Ron Conkoma. Hey,
3: Frank, another awesome show. I would like to congratulate Jackie and Italiano Ferno for winning a landslide in the ConnectWatt school board. Frank, again, have a great night.
2: Jay in Brooklyn. Frankie in Glendale.
3: Hey, good morning, Frank. I really enjoyed your program yesterday at 6 a.m. with uh, your boss, Mr. Kassel. He really knows what he's doing. Have a great day.
2: Thank you. Peter in Staten Island. I don't know the result, but I hope the odds win He's a great man. He's a great man. Still too close to call at this point. Steve and Linwood.
9: But today you just read that the man was shot dead by a gun that didn't make any noise. But it wasn't the bullet that laid him to rest, it was the low spark of high yield boys.
1: Evelyn and Bayonne. Frank, perfect, uh, perfect person who made a comeback.
18: Cousin Brucey. He sounds just like he did before.
2: You know, I don't know that he ever went away. He went from being on Sirius, uh to here. So I don't know that he there was a comeback. He has just kept on keeping on. Mike in Montclair.
14: Good morning, Frank. Uh,
15: congratulations on your ratings Thank book. You. And I'd like to wish the New York Rangers the same success in the beginning of their Eastern Conference semifinals. Let's go, Rangers. Roger in Massachusetts.
5: Yeah, track the trailers under best circumstances get between five and eight miles per gallon. Now, the cost of diesel, it's a dollar a mile or $65 an hour just for the fuel. Jeff in Queens.
2: Frank, I've heard many of the, 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 the one-minute game shows.
7: Please
0: add 30 seconds. One minute is not enough time. i opinion.
2: Ralph in Massapequa.
1: <laughs> Let's go Rangers. Sizzle on Sizzle mor-
2: Uh Andy B. on Staten Island. Hey, Frank, I
7: got the show, baby, it's... Done. You know, like ninety percent. I gotta get together on this.
8: It's I, great. I, I, I it's can't awesome. wait to
2: hear it. I can't wait to hear it. And finally finally, Flannel in New Hyde Park.
8: Yeah, uh, Frankie. Oh, I think that Eric Adams is not enforcing the law in the city. Every night you see gangbangers partying on top of people. Come on, we gotta stop crime.
2: Thank you, Flannel. All right. Um Deb Valentine and the Early News is next. I will not be back at 6 a.m. I believe um, Sid Rosenberg will be here. I'm not sure if Bernie is here as well. Um, And they should have an interesting show. We'll see. I think Andrew Giuliani is going to be on today, so we'll see where that goes. I'll be back at 1 a.m. Frank Moreno, good day.